Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson and I'm joined, as ever, by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. Hello and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Did you have a good Christmas, a good New Year? Yes, I'm all uh, I'm all detoxed and cleansed and uh, a new year, new possibilities, etc. Excellent. So for the first podcast of 2015, we have an interview with the recently Oscar-nominated Box Trolls, directors Anthony Stacci and Graham Annabel. We also have an interview with the Oscar-nominated Toral Cove, her third Oscar nomination in a row, this time for her film Me and My Molten, produced with the NFB and AS Microfilm. And we have part two of our interview with esteemed Disney alumnus Glenn Keane. First podcast out of the gate and we're already spoiling you. Excellent. Steve, are you ready to go? I'm ready and I'm raring. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Ben, it's award season, and uh, as ever, in January on the Squiggly Podcast, we'll spend a big chunk of the whole thing talking about these um, these esteemed films that have made their way up to the, at least the nomination stages of the big award ceremonies. Does it have to be a big chunk? Well, it can be a chunk of your liking, Ben. Okay, as long as I have some moderate chunk control. The first big award ceremony that has been announced um, for 2015 is the BAFTA Awards, um, the UK's equivalent of the Oscars, and a much cooler award. I think you'll uh, you'll agree. It's an award that you can actually wear, so uh, who doesn't want a mask? Certainly an ugly bastard like me. Anyway... The animated feature film, or animated film in 2015, uh, nominations go to The Box Trolls, The Lego Movie, and Big Hero 6. So three uh, three nominees there. Way! Uh, we've got an interview with um, Anthony Stacci and Graham Annabelle coming up in this very podcast. Keep your ears peeled, uh, if that's such an, uh, an expression. Um, yes, so uh, three big films there. And then the award nominations for BAFTA for British Short Animation in 2015. Uh, The Monkey Love Experiments, Ainsley Henderson, Cam Fraser and Will Anderson. The Bigger Picture, uh, Christopher Hees, Daisy Jacobs and Jennifer Maika. And My Dad, Marcus Armitage. Some familiar films there, Ben. Yes, well, I think that uh, we're both rather enamoured of uh, Will and Ainsley's Monkey Love. An interesting pair, those two, because they can make a film that will be um, emotionally poignant, and then they can make a film that's very kind of um, slapdash and comedic, and uh, they've done stuff that's sort of in between, like uh, Sweetie and Sunshine, which is kind of, you know, it's it's poignant, but it's also very funny. This one is just very nicely kind of put together, very nicely observed. Um, you, you really believe a monkey can fly. <laughs> Horrible subject matter behind it. Uh, you know, it's a complete creep that Harry Harlow was. The angle they took on it, the whole space angle, I thought was very nice. You know, I love the sort of relationship between uh, the monkey and the... Uh, what's the name of the contraption? Well, they call it the mother, don't they? It would have been... It would have been yeah, it would have been dead easy for them to do the whole kind of in-your-face, stop-being-cruel-to-monkeys kind of film... Like you say, it is it is something special. It's a wonderful film there. And there's also a light box, we should say, um, an interview uh, with uh, Will and Ainsley on uh, on the Squiggly YouTube channel. The next nominee uh, and something a film which which I 
I absolutely adored when I first saw it. I first, I saw it at the same time as seeing the Monkey Love Experiments uh, at the Edinburgh Film Festival in July last year. And it's the bigger picture, um, Daisy Jacobs. It's a, a NFTS film. Always nice to see the NFTS bothering the awards uh, season as ever. Uh, have you seen the bigger picture, Ben? Mm-hmm. What did you think? Uh, very good. You know, it continues a fine tradition of the NFTS making uh, very strong work. It's uh, There are types of films that you can relate to or you can't relate to. I, I'm nowhere near the in the situation that the two brothers find themselves in in this film. But being a being a kind of a, an older brother, I, it made me think about the relationship that I have with my siblings. Um, obviously, we give all the hard work, all the all hard work to our John. Yeah, he's going to be he's going to be sorting it all out. Um, whilst Robert complains about the rest of the stuff, uh, and I'll take a back seat. But yeah, it, it made me it made me think about my kind of family, and 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 it, and it had a it had an effect on me. It had a kind of a you know a, quite the effect. Um, the other thing about this film is, with it being life size and animated like life size, it could be seen as a kind of a gimmick. But it, it, it that kind of style of animation exists perfectly well without the story, and is and is fascinating without the story, and the story is fascinating and, and engaging without the animation, and they're two the two separate entities complement each other perfectly, and I think that's possibly one of the major strengths of this uh, particular film. Absolutely uh, well deserving of uh, any nomination or any win that it does get. What about uh, my dad? Not seen it. Yeah, me neither. So, moving along. <laughs> the Oscar nominations have more or less just been announced. The Lego movie, curiously, uh, didn't get much of a nod aside from its uh, its song. Yes, everything is awesome. Which I wouldn't have thought was really the, the highlight of the film. I kind of thought the point of the song wasn't the song sort of meant to be purposefully kind of crap. You might say that, yeah. It, it's uh, it's certainly catchy. It, I think that's that's the reason why we heard it. Well, the whole sort of joke of the film is like it's about like you know ingenuity versus mediocrity, and the hallmark of mediocrity is when like the song comes on and everyone's like, "Oh, I love this song." Uh, yeah, everyone loves it. You know? It's all exactly the same. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's quite. The... <laughs> Let's talk through the nominees for best. Uh, feature film animated, uh, it's, as it's called. The nominees are Big Hero 6, The Box Trolls, How to Train Your Dragon 2, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, and The Song of the Sea. It's a good selection there. It's nice to see two... Uh, well, it's, it's kind of tradition now, isn't it? To have two sort of left-field, non-mainstream animated features in there. And certainly when they were announced... Uh, the Song of the Sea and the Tale of the Princess Kaguya um, got quite got an audible response, um, you know, get, getting whoops and applause, whereas the, the more mainstream films uh, were announced to silence. Well, I think that the, the massive sort of saturation of something like How to Train Your Dragon 2, which would be sort of, you know, everywhere, people are probably over it in a sense. And uh, the box trolls got kind of a, a crap deal, I think, in terms of its sort of critical representation. A lot of people didn't quite understand it, but to the same sort of end, it was quite heavily marketed. It's you know there are still uh, rubbish bins everywhere I go that have box trolls posters on them for some reason. They've both been big presences, whereas I think 
Princess Kaguya and Song of the Sea, uh, there's a lot more anticipation, I think, behind them. There's a lot more, I think, there's sort of an air of mystery because the Song of the Sea hasn't even gotten a wide release yet. You know, it's been this this film that's being sort of talked about and excited whispers from, you know, the festival circuit and certain major events. And it hasn't really sort of gotten that kind of, um, uh, you know, marketing campaign, that push. It's not plastered on every bus, you see. But it has this very uh, hip quality to it in the sense of it's an independent production. Well, independent, you know, categorically speaking, outside of the Hollywood spectrum. A little more homegrown. I think there's more reason to get excited over the likes of, you know, Cartoon Saloon getting an Oscar nod than, say, a DreamWorks film. It's a shame to see some of our favourite, less mainstream films not get a mention or, or, or a nod such as Cheating or uh, Rocks in My Pockets. It's a shame, but it's, you know, the world will keep turning. And, you know, the Oscars is such a strange beast anyway. And I oh, think that what the yeah. kind of things that an Oscar nomination or even an Oscar win facilitates, I'm not entirely sure how useful that is to the likes of the Bill Plimptons and the, the Sidney Bowmans. And we both saw Adam Elliott talk about what his Oscar win led to, and it ultimately wasn't the kind of thing that he needed creatively. There was no increase in opportunities for him to get something like Mary and Max made with a major Hollywood studio. Mm-hmm. They'd still have the same reservations about the subject matter and about the tone and about you know the marketing issues, Oscar or no Oscar. So if you want to make the kind of film that you want to make, I think being a little separated from what's sort of perceived as the Hollywood mainstream is always actually going to be better creatively. Yeah, I could see that. There must be a lot of stress and pressure when when you when you do get that kind of acclaim, especially with something like something as niche as animation. It is seen as the biggest award, but like as you say, the Oscars is is it's a weird it's a weird one. I mean, the the animated feature generally tends to go to the film that everybody's heard of or the one with the best marketing campaign, and the animated um, short film is anybody's guess really. When it comes to that kind of uh, a claim you want to look somewhere like the Annies or somewhere where where peers have, have voted for that that kind of film or the British Animation Awards or something like that uh, or or like festivals and things like you know things where animation is is kind of uh, exclusively celebrated. It does appear that they've been a little more uh, adventurous with the uh, short film nominations than they have in uh, in years past. Hmm. I mean Disney. You know, Disney get a nomination in a sense that's almost predetermined. But you know, to see um, the guys who made Mute get a nomination, they have a new film called A Single Life, which I've also not seen yet. But you know, they're not uh, certainly part of the uh, the clique of of mainstream short film production. Neither, I suppose, would be the NFB. Although I would have thought that they might be, except that last year they got this. Well, they got so many films long-listed or short-listed I guess technically but none of them actually made the nomination which was really surprising yeah that was a bit of a head-scratcher last year seeing um, Subconscious Password and, and films of that, that like not getting any kind of um, nod but I suppose uh, previous winner uh, Toral Cove maybe that well I don't know I mean uh, Chris Landreth won hmm live rambling <laughs> sorry it's okay we get there in the end yeah <laughs> Um, yeah. This is why it's such a head scratcher. <laughs> <You know. laughs> 
How do they think? If you knew how they think, you'd be able to make the perfect film and get them win the awards. Yeah, but then think of the films that have won the most sort of Oscars, and many of them you wouldn't really consider to be perfect films. Yeah. It's it's a badge of acclaim, and it's I think it's it's a great thing to work toward. It's a if you need that kind of thing to burn the fire inside you. But ultimately, they do make this stuff up as it goes along. Absolutely. I've been talking to quite a few people who work on juries and things like that recently for another project, and I find that I respect the people more who are just sort of honest about like how much of it is very circumstantial, how much of it is very in the moment. A lot of the times people will be at loggerheads. You know, people who are part of a selection committee, you know, not want to uh, uh, commit to a decision that, you know, the other people are sort of pressuring them into committing. You know, I've never actually been on a panel for an award thing. I think you have. Yeah, just a um, couple. I've been on a panel for a pilot scheme uh, not that long ago. And there was a real kind of hubbub around you know, what the virtues of, of one project is versus what the virtues of another thing are. You know, it's kind of, you're just a bunch of people arguing in a room. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, well, I, I've been on them in the past and, and one of them, um, I'm not going to say which one, but we had this conversation about the winner of this particular category and it was like, well, we'll hurt this person's feeling if we don't make him the winner. <laughs> and it was right. like, well... He said, I made the best film. And he's like, well, yeah, but, you know, we're counting votes and we've got this this system. And I just said, well, can I have a show of hands then? Should we do it like that? Let's vote how votes should be made. Show of hands. Who wants this film to win? Everyone put their hand up. Then we have a winner. You know, it, because like, as you say, it just it boils down to people arguing this kind of semantics about everything. And it just gets a little bit, a little bit much. But I do often wonder about, you know, what, what led to these decisions for the for the Oscars? Obviously, it's a voting process, but you know, to make the long list and and and, and the short list uh, before the nominees are announced. Um, so we haven't be actually been through the nominees uh, for the Oscars yet, but the the list of nominations in in full for the um, short film animated, as the category is called, is the bigger picture. Um, so that's a BAFTA and an Oscar nomination for Daisy Jacobs, uh, the Dam Keeper. Uh, me and my Milton, uh, Feast, and A Single Life. What would be the film that scratched the itch most for you of this selection? This motley crew, I dare say. I I'm looking at the the Oscar nominations, and I also look at the I look at the BAFTA nominations first. I'd like to see the Box Trolls win both of them. The thing I don't know if I said it on last year's podcast or the year before. I probably have. I'm probably repeating myself. But the film that wins the best animated feature in the Baftas always goes on to win the Oscars as well. So what's interesting about this category is that the Baftas have a nomination for the Lego Movie. So if that wins, it'll be the first time that that particular prediction system, or however you wish to call it. Um, Will have, will have will will have been false, but if uh, Big Hero Six or the Box Trolls win, you can pretty much put your money on that winning the Oscar as well. So has this since time immemorial been the prediction system? Since two thousand and one, when when the Baftas and uh, sorry, t- since two thousand and six rather, when the Baftas started doing, so you know, a good nine years. So it might break the cycle. It might, it might indeed. Well, I think we said that last year and Frozen went and won both. So (laughs) the year that I did think that it would actually break was when Brave was out. I was very surprised to see Brave win um, the BAFTA and then go on to win 
win the Oscar. I think it was out up in the same year as the Pirates, and I really wanted the Pirates to win the Oscar because it had been snubbed at the BAFTAs. That doesn't really answer your question, did it? But never mind. <laughs> so if the Lego movie wins a BAFTA, and that automatically means that the uh, film that wins an Oscar will be different, what do you think the ramifications will be? Oh, I think that uh, there'll be riots in the street. Um, Dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. It'll be crazy. Absolutely crazy. Well, who knows? I mean, it's about time they mixed it up a bit. It certainly is. Um, it would be great to see um, Song of the Sea win. It would be great to see the box trolls win, but we all know that Big Hero 6 is going to take both of them. That would be kind of a shame, I suppose. I can't really... I mean, it may be that of the three of them, Big Hero 6 is the best. I think I haven't seen it, so I can't really... Um, just from what I've seen of it, it just doesn't seem to kind of grab me by the, uh, the old short and curlies there. Whereas, you know, <clears throat> Box Trolls had at least that sort of visual fun to it and the Lego movie. Well, I guess both of them are just so much more fun to look at. Yes, you know, absolutely. I liked watching the Lego movie the first time because I enjoyed what it was saying about the nature of creativity and knowing your limits. And uh, Christ alive, do we ever have to deal with people in this industry who get out of their depth, you know? And the Lego movie is like... You know, it's kind of, I mean, it's a great little film for kids about, like, childish creativity and stuff like that. But the way it all kind of wraps up at the end, they belabor the point a little bit with the whole Will Ferrell live-action bit. Um, but the yeah. ultimate kind of thing that they're saying, I absolutely approve of and endorse. It's, it's a, you know, be who you are. And if that involves being creative and not having to sort of play by the rules, then you can find a way of making that work for you. That's beautiful, Watching man. it a second time... I kind of felt that the actual story behind it wasn't as engaging. Yeah. Like, it didn't quite hold up to repeat viewing, but it was still glorious to look at. So, that does have, to me, sort of repeat viewing in it, in the sense of I can just, like, I could probably look at that film quite a few times and just, like, study what's going on. Whereas the box trolls, I think there was more evenly kind of balanced. There was this nice kind of grim fairy tale at its center, and then all this great quirky... Uh, stop motion invention going along with uh, with pretty much every scene had something about it that made it fun to watch and not necessarily the same degree of like absolute ingenuity and sort of metaphysical ingenuity that the Lego movie had but it's they were both very satisfying films I thought and it's sort of rare for me to be that into mainstream animation films because mm -hmm. very few of them actually do anything that is that new and uh, by the way I finally saw Brave Okay. You've seen this film, right? I have seen this film, yeah. Why does every Disney film have to end up in the woods when someone's been turned into an animal? <laughs> but that, And was that at all mentioned in, like, the sort of... like They completely bait-and-switched. The whole premise of that film was, like, it was this kind of, like, new, cool idea, like, the, you know, leading, strong female role model, blah, 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 you know, life decision, like, you know, there's some wizardry and fantasy shit in it, but, you know... It's Disney, you've got to put up with that to a certain degree. You know, really, there's this sort of new substantial direction that they're going with it. No, it's just another f movie where they're lost in the woods and one of them's been turned into an animal. But, you know, The Emperor's New Groove at least had a kind of, like, spin on it. They hadn't done it in a while. Then Princess and the Frog, like, hid that too. That's a, you know, they just end up in the woods and they're frogs. But... That wasn't at all how the film was like represented in the trailer and stuff like that. So it then becomes sort of an unfunny version of a film that we've seen in the not-too-distant past. And then, Brave, you're in the f woods again. 
<laughs> so what should they do? What should they have done differently? Taken out the whole shit with the mum being turned into a bear and then being lost in the woods that you've seen in like five other Disney films. <laughs> Are you asking for my legitimate criticism? Not do the thing what? that they've already done into the f***ing ground. <laughs> so... So what should they have done? Should they have like made give it made to knock her on the head? Should have done like a kind of Freaky Friday? What what should they have done? Well, maybe not something that's been done in a film before. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like maybe something that doesn't. You know, maybe not think of like okay, we could do what they did in this film, or we could do what they did in that film. Maybe actually do what they kind of hinted at doing in the trailers and everything like that, and have it actually be a story with real emotional growth and emotional development more than I like my mum more now that I've seen her take a shit in the woods. <laughs> we understand each other better. It's one of those things that goes back to like the absolute olden days of classic Disney cinema. I mean, they did that in, it was the sword and the stone, wasn't it? Where they become like squirrels, I guess, or chipmunks. Yeah. Squirrels. You know, they got to do that whole, like, you know, I'm a squirrel with squirrel worries for the next little while. Yeah. And then, you know, you get the other squirrel who comes into the equation and she's in love with the main squirrel and a comedy of errors ensues and then he's got to leave her hanging and she's all like frothed up and waiting for some squirrel love. But her squirrel, Amore, has buggered <laughs> off. I always found that scene very sad, by the way. Left the poor girl in the lurch. Classic Disney, yeah. Classic Disney. And all the people I know who've seen Brave have talked about it being this really sort of, you know, progressive new direction for Disney. They've just taken the same thing and dressed it up in a big ginger wig. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've managed to catch up with films from the 60s through to three years ago. <laughs> but what about the short films, Ben? What would you like to see when the short films for, for both BAFTA and Oscar? I liked Monkey Love. Um, it's already won a BAFTA. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it certainly uh, proved its worth. Where's the harm in two? Eh? Yeah. I ask you. Of the Oscar nominations, I was, uh, uh, well, I thought the Dam Keeper was, was really something special, you know. They clearly left Pixar and didn't ride the sort of Pixar coattails. They, they know how to put together a film, essentially, by hard, hard work and yeah. a lot of talent and ability. And that's what shows through most of all in the, in the Dam Keeper. I'd like to see those guys have a strong start with their venture, because they seem very sincere. Absolutely, yeah. They're a nice, they're a nice couple of guys. Uh, you can find out more uh, in a Lightbox video. Uh, we put together an interview with uh, directors uh, Diced Sumi and uh, Robert Kondo, the directors of the Dam Keeper, which you can see on our YouTube channel. So uh, check that out. And not to mention, of course, it's very podcast. They were on a few episodes back. So if you haven't caught up yet, get downloading. Absolutely. There's also an interview, uh, a, a Lightbox interview with. Uh, uh, Toril Cove as well, and, and, and nominees from... Oh, we've interviewed everybody, Ben. We're such pests. Will and Ainsley, of course, talking about monkey love. and Yeah. Uh, we like animation. It's uh, it's like our thing. It's becoming a bit of an obsession. I'm a little worried. So will you be crestfallen if uh, any particular films don't win? Either the BAFTA or the Oscar, Steve? No, I think people are already kind of um, crestfallen in certain respects. The... Uh, Obviously, the big, the big upset has been the the Lego Movie uh, emission and the um, the fact that Duet hasn't been nominated as well. Mm. You know, they're two big kind of sore points. Uh, the social media is a little bit uh, a little bit upset by those two uh, 
emissions. I think um, the the person who I feel sorry for most uh, isn't the director of the Lego movie, isn't Glenn Keane. It's uh, squiggly writer Katie Steed, who uh, really had her, her money on the Lego movie and duet, uh, both getting nominations and winning, and they've announced on her birthday of all days, Ben, ah. that neither of them are in it. I mean... No consideration whatsoever. Well, what has she done to piss him off, eh? Well. It's Illuminati. They're behind it all. They are. They're watching us. So moving along to the first of our Oscar-nominated guests, let's, uh, let's have a chat with the directors of The Box Troll, shall we? Or rather, shall Steve Cav and uh, young writer-animator Fiona stewart Clark tagging along and uh, weighing in. They talked to Graham Annabelle and Anthony Starchy, who were the co-directors of The Box Trolls. We, of course, had the CEO of Leica, Mr. Travis Knight, on the podcast not that long ago. But uh, it's good to get some time with the directors themselves. So let's hear about what it was like to make The Box Trolls with Graham Annabelle and Anthony Starchy. Yeah, Box Trolls is my, uh, my favourite animated film of the year so far. I really oh, love great. it, which is why when this job came out... I- just got straight in there. Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, um, and uh, I thought it was, you know, fantastic technically, in particular, you know, all the the, face, the facial stuff mm. and the, the camera dynamics and stuff like that. And um, the character animation was amazing. I thought it had the best baddie ever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's great. Yeah, and so uh, Ben really brought a lot to that character, and then they just built an amazing puppet. Yeah, right. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. it was really nuanced. The animation on that character, in particular. Was that was that just one guy who did that all the time? No, we don't. Uh, you know, Travis Knight, who's the CEO um, on Coraline, they had um, character leads, so yeah. they had an animator um, would go with a specific character. But oftentimes, what happens is whatever shots ready to come out the pipe, an animator would get assigned with. So a lot of times, you'd have three shots in a row, and they'd be done by three different animators. Yeah. So it actually showed up the inconsistencies in the animation style a lot. Yeah. So um, Paranorman, they m- moved to a process more um, sequence leads where an animator gets a whole chunk of the film. So that moment where Snatcher meets Winnie on a foggy market square, okay. kind of early in the film, Travis was is, is always the first on and the first off animator. He took that sequence at the beginning, and he started to sort of define the way Snatcher moved. And it happened to be one of the key sequences that when we first recorded with Sir Ben, it had written in the script. There was one part where he says, you know, how did this hat end up all the way out here? This has that elongated word. Okay, and that's yeah. how it was written in the script. Well, Servan took that and ran with it, and then every time he said a vowel, he would extend it longer, and every which kind of freaked me out when we first recorded him. I was like, what is he doing? And it was incredibly strange to, to hear right. it, and it took me a while. Well, it really took until I flew back uh, to Portland and played it for Graham and Travis, and I thought Travis was going to say, right, you're fired, get out. But instead, he loved it, and you know, he, he thought it really gave him an image in his head of how to animate the character, and I... Sir Ben said that he based it on somebody that he knew, but he would never tell us who it was. Um, but it, it really, you know, that's what you want, is a, is a recording of dialogue that really excites the animators, that they can immediately figure out how to do it. And I think that, that the idea that Snatch is this wannabe aristocrat, and he has this affectation in the way he talks and stuff that he thinks makes him sound more aristocratic, stuff. So all those things just kind of built on each other, you know, on top of the great Mike Smith design, and, and then they're just... You know, we've had three films together with the same crew building these puppets, so they've gotten better and better each time. Yeah, that's because uh, one of the things I liked about it is it just seemed to push everything to quite extreme mm, yeah. uh, boundaries. You know, it was yeah. quite um, 
quirky and, and some kind of grotesque, a lot of it, quite surprisingly grotesque for a mainstream you know, and film, I, you know. And I wish I could say that, it, that a lot of that stuff happened because we had thought of it, but it was a lot of the confluence of a lot of things. It's like the rapid prototype facial technology had advanced in the three films. So the heads could get smaller and smaller and more and more delicate, right. and their expressions could be better. And because of that, we could make smaller heads so that the proportions on the characters were a bit more realistic. So you got that little extra thing. So the grotesquerie is in the caricature. Yeah. And then, and because it's a story about you know this guy who's who's persecuting this minority and he calls them monsters, it, it was important that everything not be weird. That the monsters <coughs> looked so different that they looked a little monstery, and the people looked, although caricatured, normal. Yeah. And and stuff. So a lot of that stuff happened. And boy, I wish I could have articulated that three years ago and say this is my plan, but it just sort of happened. Yeah. And then Alan Snow's book. I mean, the seed of everything is yeah. in there. You know. Yeah. So, so that yeah. Snatcher character is. He's probably the character who came the most unchanged out of the. His motivations and his dialogue and stuff is all. You know, we came up with that when we did the story. But Alan's conception of the villain snatcher in the book, yeah, relative very to the much, source material, very yeah. much our snatcher too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. very true. I had um, a bit of a silly question, I guess, but um, you know, I, I was reading that the book is is based in is it Lempster or somewhere, which is uh, uh, Ratbridge is based uh, on Trowbridge. Trowbridge, sorry, yeah, yes. Trowbridge. <laughs> we looked at which Trowbridge is, and we you know, like, like <laughs> when Disney <laughs> go to. Yeah, Scotland. We <laughs> no, no, we went to a French graphic novelist called Nicolas de Cressy, uh, right, who's a okay. really great French um, bon dessinier, those hardcover comic books, artist. And I'd always loved his work. And when I, as soon as I read the book, I said, oh, we've got Nicolas to do some inspirational sketches. And he did a couple of weeks of inspirational sketches for us. And that, that really kind of nailed the look that, that me and Graham liked. Yeah, and, and it's, you know, the way that the city of Cheesebridge ended up from what Michel Breton, who then was our sort of main concept guy and extrapolated from all the Nicola de Cressy's artwork, we really ended up with more of a Miyazaki-type representation of not just London, per se, mm. or, or Britain. It ended up being pieces of, it felt like, all of Europe, which we yeah. should have argued for. And it's an American trip around of all of it. You know, really beautiful <laughs> old buildings leaning on each other and sort of falling down and stuff. And then it's just, it's a, it's a super big, long book. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very Dickensian in the way yeah. it sort of creates this whole society and then the characters are run through the society so you get to know the society at every level. Mm -hmm. So we had a hard time early without long expositional scenes of characters talking about stuff. We had to figure out a way to tell things visually. So a really tall pointed city that's really hierarchical, aristocrats at the top, right, yeah. everybody else in the middle stuff. So we kept trying to find visual ways um, of filling in those blanks so we didn't have to talk about them. Mm. And it, it worked on that, and it worked in the uh, costume designs. Deborah Cook, who's a fantastic costume designer, she found a way of, of, of making them look Edwardian, Victorian, but also like gangs. You know, the White Hats are a gang, and Snatcher's Men are a gang, and they're identified sort of by the clothes they wear. So that kind of helped us visually in, in the storytelling stuff. And she had the most psychotic boards. There yeah. was Edwardian, um, Victorian clothes, but then there was all the clothes the Rolling Stones, Stones ever yeah. wore, and these <laughs> <Right>. Japanese musical <laughs> gangs that hang out in Tokyo and dance on the weekend. She had all this weird reference, and that's where she came up with the oh, costumes and yeah. stuff. Because because that's one of the things about it is it like is it extremely, but but in a cartoonified way, extremely British. You know, like all the voices are British. It's yeah. kind of uncompromising uncom in that way. You know that you usually get yeah. 
the, the main characters as an American voice or right. something like yeah. that. You know, Travis never balked at That's the amazing, idea. Yeah. You know, as we presented it. In fact, I, you know, we didn't think Sir Ben would be. In no, the that was one of the ones on our wish list that you know we didn't think he, he actually would take on the role. It seems like an actor of his stature probably has been offered animated yeah. roles before, and he hadn't done it. So yeah, right. we were shocked and very excited that he took it on. Um, but yeah, tra to Travis's credit, yeah, he didn't balk at all in terms yeah. of us choosing yeah. the actors, English actors we really wanted for the story that we felt were right. Um, you know, it was funny too because when we went to, Richard Ayoade isn't that well known <laughs> in the United States, but when we went to Comic-Con and they announced the cast that was in the yeah. movie, <laughs> and got by the far biggest the biggest really, cheer yeah. of all the dorks down in San Diego. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you mention um, uh, Travis because uh, I was I was the other week I went to um, Ardman for a job and I, I, I told them I was going to meet you guys. I was talking to uh, one of the lead animators there and stuff. And, um, and I, so I say, no, you know, because I'm not a stop frame person, I'm more like other kinds of animation. And uh, so I, I said, I'm going to meet you guys and have you got any suggestions for questions, you know? And, he's, and he, was, he was saying that, um, like me, you know, he was technically absolutely blown away by the film. And, uh, you know, he asked me to ask you about the facial stuff and, yeah. you know, because it's different from them where it's sort of handmade yeah. still, whereas yours is kind of printed out yes. in, yeah. from, uh, from CG. Yeah. That's early on, Coraline. That was, that was um, <clears throat> Travis's sort of whole idea is to drag stop motion into the modern world by bringing in, you know, it's always, you know, a stop motion film. I mean, the, the armatures are the same as the yeah, armatures yeah. on the original King Kong. They're much finer made nowadays yeah. and stuff and capable of more movement. But using these rapid prototype printers um, to generate the faces, the concept of, of head replacement animation is, you know, it's been around. It's been around since the 40s, I think, George yeah. Powell and yeah. puppetoons and all that stuff. But yeah, because Hardman do facial replacement. Mm -hmm. Like, I've seen their libraries of hundreds of yes. mouths and stuff, but yeah. it's all kind of hand, hand carved, you know. Yeah, no, yeah. this, this day we, we, the animators get together with a facial animator, unless they work on the computer themselves, and then they animate it in Maya on the computer. Yeah. So that, um, to the final dialogue, and then they print <coughs> them out. We That's print amazing, them out for the time to do like the shots. It's so smooth that you wouldn't, yeah. you know, it kind of looks a bit like CG. Yeah, I mean, it, it <coughs> doesn't have the same number of, you know, the increments aren't no, as close. No. You know, there aren't as many in-betweens, yeah. but they've gotten better and better to do that, those fine But it is in a, it's in a interesting space now because yeah it's not as herky-jerky as everyone associates with stop-motion yeah. but it's not quite as slick as the computer yeah. yet it's in this little interesting yeah. middle ground now that yeah, again nice, yeah. for us provide I feel like provides something new to yeah. an audience yeah, I haven't definitely. quite seen it on that level but it all seems to be you know respectful of what the medium is and how it should feel yeah, yeah. yeah. we really benefited from the fact that there's probably only about 30 really fantastic stop-motion animators in the world and there wasn't another big stop motion movie being made at the same yeah. time as us, so we got all of them. Yeah, because yeah, you know. Coraline and Paranorman, at those times of those features, there were always another big project somewhere else, most most of it usually here. Yeah. And that pool of amazing animators is always a bit split. Or yeah. Ardman might be really busy, so mm -hmm. there's people there and stuff. We had a few people who had worked at Ardman in the past and stuff, so we really lucked out with the cream of the crop, yeah, animator-wise and stuff. And then Travis... You know, he keeps a pretty high standard, you know, of wanting it to look, you know, have weight and to look realistic and not to be cartoony and yeah. stuff too, which lent itself perfectly to our film and stuff. Yeah. You know, the animation style in some of the other films might change a little bit, but that's kind of, you know, like a style is, is, is they do pretty naturalistic kind on of ones, yeah. yeah, animation. Yeah, um, 
because I'm sorry I mentioned Travis in the previous question then I got sidetracked yeah. on the face thing but the, re the reason um, yeah because he was because he, he was saying like with with the kind of jealousy in his voice that he was saying that um, you know at, at, at Laker do you call it Laker or Laker? Laker. Yeah like um, the dog. Yeah. Okay. The unfortunate dog. Um, <laughs> you know you guys have got because you've got this kind of private uh, guy who, who backs all yeah. the films it's like you haven't got to deal with all the studios no, no and all the executives. So, so you know that's the reason you can produce something like Box Trolls which was right. quite extreme and, and not yeah. conventionally mainstream. Yeah <laughs> even, even the story you know it's it's, it is as close as you can get to independent filmmaking yeah. in an animation setting, and we only have Travis. You know, he's the guy to go through, um, and you know, he 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 loves animation. You know, he's not a guy who's sort of punching his ticket on the way to the top of the studio, working in animation for a while, or somebody who has, you know, a whole bunch of corporate weight on his back for merchandising and stuff. So we're freed up a lot in 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 the stories. We don't have to worry about possibly a. Uh, offending some small group somewhere, we can push the stories to slightly darker places. And it's his theory not to make dark movies, but if we can go to the darker places, that maybe the moments of light and happiness are that much more powerful. And yeah. stuff. Kind of like the early Disney films, you know, which were quite dark, like Pinocchio, yeah, exactly, and Dumbo, yeah. and stuff. So and we those are, are the totally best ones free. ever, aren't they? The ones with a, yeah. a level of. Like it's like the best fairy tales, you know, when you feel them all smooth out. Yeah, you're more connected to. Them. And I think kids like it. I mean, you can see kids yeah, when they watch the movie. They may not, you know, be dancing in their seats as much as Frozen and stuff, but they can see they're getting a window onto adult issues. Yeah. That there are themes and Absolutely. motivations in here and dangers that and jeopardies that they're not used to seeing in animated films. And they're at least you have their attention for sure. And, yeah. and, and that's we we actively wanted to, to go for a younger audience. There's no supernatural horror element in this one like Coraline or, or, or Paranorman. So we thought it skewed a bit younger and we tried to make it more colorful and in the scenes that aren't underground or at night, a um, bit brighter and stuff than your yeah. average stop motion movie, which tend, I don't know whether it's because of stop motion or because <laughs> of the people who make them, but they tend to go in a creepy direction. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. Tim Burton sort of sort of looming over the whole um, yeah. art so much. Yeah. Working together as directors, mm. did you ever have like a struggle or like any dilemmas? How did you split the roles up? conflict wasn't reached? Well, I, you know, I worked as a story artist on Coraline and Paranorman, and I presumed I'd be a story artist on Box Trolls, uh, but early on, while things were still in development for Box Trolls, and I got a little break on Paranorman, I got a chance to board a sequence for Tony, um, and that sequence at the time really became the thing that, for Travis and for Tony, was like, ah, this is, now we have a piece of this movie, we, because Trying, you know, it was a big struggle to figure out Alan Snow's book, and this became this piece that really fit for what the studio and what Tony wanted to do with it. And so it was sort of a melding of uh, sensibilities that I suddenly found myself in the role of helping direct the film. Um, so the duo happened because we were really in sync on a lot of stuff. I mean, when I try to think of like specific things you and I like got into conflict. There would have been story, you know, story like all animation, yeah. you do the story reel together. So that part, there's a lot of back and forth mm -hmm. there, and there's a lot of ideas that I was just like, bonded, this has got to be in the movie, and then later didn't end up in the movie. Mm -hmm. sure. stuff in but in a lot of ways it became you and I as a unit me. sort of protecting yeah. what the film became with the rest of the studio, yeah. trying to convince everybody that this was the right way to do this, and this was the film we needed to make. Um, and for that pre-production phase, we're like, we're like joined at the hip, pretty much. We're just always together figuring out the decisions and then when 
the shooting schedule begins is when the studio is really excited to have two directors because once that shooting schedule starts, they can split us on sequences and have two edit suites going with animators filing in and out and keep the whole process moving as smoothly as possible. And during that, there's still voice records to be done, and a lot of them were done here in London. So you would typically go fly over to London for three days, but they still had a director in the studio, so everything could keep moving. Yeah, so. yeah that 18 months is really hectic. Yeah, more intense than I ever, ever anticipated. <laughs> Would you say that that part of it was the funnest part as well then? The production part? Yeah. I wouldn't call it fun. Mm. Would you not? No. Which part would, was the most The funnest part of the whole film, if I'm really being honest, was this that part. was... Meeting with you. Yeah. <laughs> when the movie was done, and that week we spent here in London with Dario Marinelli doing the final score because it felt like, wow, all the big decisions of the film were in place, were done, and here's this guy with this orchestra who's like elevating everything to a level that's like, oh, it's not a prediction. <laughs> it's just incredible. It's actually kind of works. It feels yeah. like a real movie. It really, that was, that was that moment where you kind of felt all the big pieces of it come together, and there really is the film in front of you. Yeah, so, I, so with sorry, no, no. I was just going to say, and 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 stop motion. Ha it doesn't have as much deferred gratification as other mm. forms of animation. It's like two D animation. You draw it, clean it up, you get it in between. It gets inked and painted, composited. So you go a long time without seeing what the final film is going to look like. And CG, same thing. You low res animation gets to be textured and composite and everything. In, in stop motion, which was really keeps you going when you're just about exhausted, is that when somebody shoots a shot, which is just two box rolls on a cobblestone street in a dark alleyway. It's done. First yeah. two weeks Fully of production, lit. you There's see a everything. beautiful scene, and you go, "Wow!" That you get really excited. It's like live action dailies, and that never happens in animation. So that once you start seeing the stuff come together, plus, you know, most of the places I worked on CG films prior to this, if you squint your eyes and look around, you could be working at a bank, you know. And here, every day you go in and you hear sawing and welding and hammering, and you walk out and there's a, you know, these black curtains surrounding the market square, and it's all built. And you see it in plywood form, and then you see it painted, and the cobblestone streets are added and stuff. So little by little, you get the most amazingly beautiful model train sets to visit every day, and that that's really fun. Yeah. So that part of it, that part was great. And that, but the reason that, as Tony just described, you would think, yeah, that must have been the best part of the whole production. But the thing that helps balance how great that is, is the fact that with stop motion animation, uh, unlike 2D or CG animation, which are much more iterative. And so when you're in the role of director, you can keep visiting the animator and you can keep pulling drawings and you can kind of keep whittling and honing and refining and keep going through and just focus on one element, keep going through it. Stop motion, it's, it's all it's at once. It's a performance. It feels much more akin to, to theater, I think, where you have these incredibly intense conversations with the animators when you go over the animatic to prepare them to go out and shoot that final shot. They usually get, if they're lucky, they'll get a block, which is, you know, something that's shot on like maybe eights or twelves and just kind of logistically figures out where everything's going to be in the shot. Then they'll get a rehearsal which is usually on twos or fours and you get one sort of clunky glimpse at what the performance is going to be and then they go to shoot it. And, that's and it's like no matter how much prep you've done in the boards and everything else, all the other pieces that happened before it, the film kind of feels like it comes down to that moment and that conversation with the animator before they walk out that door and go to the stage yeah, interesting. and make the yeah. shot that will live forevermore in the film. So 
Yeah. We've described it. It was like 18 months straight of opening night. I mean, no rehearsals. Like, yeah, yeah, you just always felt. It's, 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 it's taken 100 years for stop motion to figure out a way to combine the worst attributes of traditional animation and live action filmmaking and mix them all up into one cocktail of fear and alienation <laughs> and stress. Because all that work you've done for two years <clears throat> in preparation, like Graham said, comes down to launching that animator. And if you don't get it all out in that first conversation, his rehearsal doesn't go well. And then, and the, the you know the other defining element of stop motion is it's 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 scarcity. It's you only have so many puppets, so they're scheduled to the very end of production. So if, if the rehearsal goes wrong and the animator has been rehearsing for four days or five days and you need him to rehearse again, the producer's not going to let you do it for one or give you a good argument. But that'll that means that puppet is out of commission for four days and it throws off the whole schedule. So there was times where we said, you know, I want to redo that shot with the little teddy bear in it. Well, we only have one teddy bear and he's, he's busy on green six. Mm -hmm. And then he needs to go to green eight and it's throwing everything off to redo that little teddy bear mm -hmm. thing. So you can't just download another eggs like you can download another Woody and have an animator yeah. capacity. it. There's a limited number of them because they're expensive and difficult to make. So that was another thing that was unique mm -hmm. to me. Because that gives me a real insight into the process now. Because I never thought, I never really thought of it as you, because you, you know, like in in CG and live action, you make a, a kind of previs or right. a, or three D layouts. You know, you have so there's a different there's a stage between the yeah. the two D animatic and then yeah. there's this other stage which is yeah. roughing out the animation. And right. Then it, so you for that, so you have that stage as well, but you kind of well, we do did, it with rough we animation, but shot. We did implement. Um, <coughs> um, CG previs, mostly because we wanted to loosen the camera up. Oh, okay. We wanted the cinematography to be to be less, you know, can kind of feel like you're trapped on a model train set for 90 yeah. minutes, some stop motion movies, because the camera movements would be very simple. Yeah. And animation is, you know, the camera, cinematography, <coughs> and movies, you know, How to Train Your Dragon, stuff mm -hmm. that are, you know, it's so fantastic nowadays. So we added that previous. Now that's just very crude previous, mm -hmm. but it, we could figure out the camera moves. It didn't really I, inform the animation so much, but it was really helpful in terms of the, the camera sets. movement and yeah. building, yeah, and and informing the, the set designers about how much set they needed to really deal yeah, with. Yeah, right. Okay, so you have that, so you have a kind of CG previous and you have a, a, a kind of um, like you called it a rehearsal, which is a kind of yes. previs but with the puppets. Yeah, with yeah. the puppet, but yeah, on right. eights and okay. stuff, or fours right, yeah. and twos, yeah. And that that's why wow, it's really a lot good. of stages. <laughs> it is, it is, but it's. it's <coughs> well, I guess you need that because it, because like you say, it's so scary going into the final. Yeah, well, yeah that's just. Otherwise, it'd be a train wreck and could be a train wreck in slow motion. Yeah. It's just you're a week <laughs> into the shot and you're just going, oh, it's not working. You can't do that, yeah. you know. And the animators do about 35 to 45 frames a day, yeah. two or three seconds a week. So if they do 35 to 45 frames a day and you go out there, we visit them every day on their sets as they're animating. We see what they've done so far playing up yeah. there. So we were allowed a 10-frame cutback. We could say, I don't like the way this is going. Cut back 10 frames and do this bit over. Any more than 10 frames, the producer comes out. Yeah. And then if that conversation goes on too long, the scheduler comes out. You can just hear people starting to show up in the editorial room going, what are these guys doing? Because that's a whole day, and that affects the schedule. And do you ever go, cut back 15 frames? Don't tell yes. anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've tried, tried that a few times. Yeah. But there's always a production person of some sort in the room. And, and you can hear their little walk comes up. You can hear whispering outside the curtain. <laughs> and then the producer shows up. They'll have mics, you know, like programmed to hear the word cut back. And then they're, you know, one thing the animators hate <coughs> is any idea that you could be looking at their shot when they're not there. So I'd like to have monitors all over the editorial room so we could monitor what they were doing. <laughs> 
You'd have a rebellion on your hands. Yeah, I don't know if you could get that system in place. It's interesting, the, the cutback thing. How, how do you go back to that frame? Well, do you, well, get, you limit do you just if it's match a, it to a monitor or something? Yeah, mm -hmm. you match it to the previous pose yeah. that's there, which they can onion skin it and then click back and forth. But if it's a subtle movement, you'll never get that pose back. Yeah, yeah it's misleading pop. almost in some ways to say that we have 10 frames that we can always cut back to because yeah. if, if they're the, flying if the through the air, yeah. big poses, you could do that. If it's a big yeah. movement, sure. But if it's a subtle movement, you can't really... No. get back there you're gonna no, have to yeah. find a point even further back where a bigger movement is taking yeah. place so you're not allowed to go further back. yeah no, exactly that's right they set it up that way perfectly they should have said like you get an 11 frame cut back you would have felt yes gained a frame still never even though you don't really necessarily gain a frame yeah. so yeah. i guess that's how you achieve the uh because um, my friend Alban said to specifically ask about you know the the final battle sequence yeah. mm. in um in, in the caves downstairs and these you know like the particularly fluid camera moves and yes, stuff like yeah, that yeah. which is which you know that was one part of it that they that they yeah. were really like admired and stuff so. we got a great dp uh, john ashley and he really uh, embraced you know doing the, the previous department yeah. so figuring out all those camera moves um just so that you don't build the whole set and then kind of have to do triage out there saying well the storyboards wanted to do this but we only have this much set what can we get with the set that mm -hmm. we built we kind of went into it more informed as mm -hmm. we knew how much we wanted that action sequence to cut together. Um, so you could you could actually do a shot in the middle of the sequence, cut it in there, and since you had the previous, which was actually moving too, you could feel how the mm -hmm. whole sequence was going. It's mm -hmm. kind of like you're saying, it's like the layout pass in traditional animation where you have a few poses of the character yeah. and the camera moving, <coughs> and you're going, oh, this is going to work. You'll always adjust it a little when you actually get into animation, but at least you know a lot more um, before you launch. Yeah. My favourite thing about DVDs is the special features. Mm. Be I tons wondered of it. if you could yeah. you know, maybe let us know. Well did you see that sequence at the end of uh, <coughs> uh, where Travis is animating pickles and Travis yeah, talking yeah. and stuff? There's more stuff like that where oh, you can see so what the set actually looked like yeah. and stuff and, yeah. and it's great because that you know, you're hoping that as soon as people get into the movie a little bit, they completely forget about the, the medium. They still, because it's stop motion and it's real puppets, that's part of the appeal. I think that people can feel that there's a difference between that and CG, but they forget. And then that's why that sequence is really great, because I think people's mind rushes back and they realize, oh, that's how the whole film was made with these little dolls. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be more stuff like that. There'll be sequence breakdowns where you can see... Um, this was, you know, Alan's book has such a huge scale. It's really a hybrid film. You know, the VFX department um, over the three pictures has gotten stronger and stronger. And in this film, there's probably not a frame in there that doesn't have some sort of CG element, whether it's atmosphere or set extension. You know, when they're, they're jumping down the rooftops, you could have shot that in a way where you just shot it so you just saw the buildings that we actually built. But we wanted to pull the camera over here so you could see the moon way off in the distance. Mm. You had been trapped underground so much, we wanted to open it up in that sequence. So everything that the puppets touch and the puppets themselves are all stop motion but the city wrapping around in the distance and then the fog between us and them going out to the horizon and the moon and the clouds that's all cg set extension it's composited later and, and we did a lot of that in this film so it'll show how those scenes were broken down you'll see the character animation and then the rigs removed and then the backgrounds added in so um, just to follow on from that very quickly, I was very fortunate to interview Mark Shapiro at Bradford Animation Festival mm. and he was saying that a lot 
of the marketing is based on how you make it because he thought that in America people didn't have as great an understanding of what stop motion is and right. stuff. I was wondering how much influence you had in the marketing. <laughs> you yeah. were against it. Yeah, yeah initially the very first trailer that really is the one that everyone responded to, which the whole world in our hands and they show all the stuff. Tony and I, our first reaction to it was like, whoa, whoa, you don't want to, don't give away the magic before mm -hmm. we've even shown them the magic. You don't do that. Yeah. Don't show them how But based, I, th I think they'd learned a lot on the way, just the way the studio has evolved and, and the way Paranorman was marketed. They had new ideas for how, like, understanding what people really wanted to see from movies from Leica. And yeah, that became kind of their focus. And sure enough, as soon as that first one went out, a huge response to it. And yeah, it I've had viral. so many people still to this day come up to us and just say how much they appreciated the fact that they really emphasized the craft behind all of it instead of just the story. Yeah, because I think fundamentally, like, there's something about stop motion when people look at it that they, you know, it's in their memory, you know, deep in their subconscious or DNA, is they remember playing with dolls and playing with trucks, playing with real objects mm -hmm. and imbuing them with a little bit of life and moving them around. So when they see this thing, somehow they know that's a real. Thing. You know, that's a real, it's real fabric and real lights. It's not a CG character and stuff, and it retains certain parts of stuff like there's no motion blur and stuff like that. It still looks diff different, you know, we never want to lose that, that stop motion mm -hmm. charm that's at the base of it, and, and that's part of the appeal that's there, especially in a film like this where the characters were a little bit more realistic looking and stuff. I think that it even made it a little bit slightly stranger experience to look at these heavily caricatured characters, but they didn't have big bobbleheads or something. They weren't screaming cartoon characters the whole time. They, they were a little bit more realistic. Yeah, that's interesting. The, uh, you know, the, last, the last shot that you were just referring to, that was one of the other things that I thought, there's no way they'd, they'd let anyone else get away with that because it's almost like an in-joke for animators that <laughs> yeah. you put there for the yeah. last minute of the film or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I, I guess everyone enjoyed it, but, you know, it just seemed particularly aimed at uh, animators. The, uh, um, yeah, well, yeah. that's kind of <clears throat> sort of happened out of a uh, mistake, the tradition of it, because the, on Coraline there was an incredibly anim beautiful animated shot with these ghost mice coming, floating out of the bricks. And it was something that very rarely happens in a stop-motion feature or even an animated feature, but at a certain point, that shot was nearly done, or was done, put into the thing, and they realized, Henry Selick realized at the time, pacing-wise, it just was slowing down the movie at the wrong time. It wasn't the right fit for that moment. So they had to cut it, and it killed Henry, I think, and everybody involved, that all this work had done, been done on this thing, and he thought, you know what, we can just give him a little behind-the-scenes look when the, you know, with the, with the rigs and everything and put it at the end of the movie and just let people appreciate it on its mm -hmm. own little piece. And so since then, again, that got a great reaction. So on Paranorman, they had a little bit where you see Paranorman, you know, from scratch to finish, kind of like getting built, and then he stands up and walks away. So we knew all through the box trolls that we were going to need to figure out our button mm -hmm. at the end. And it just so happened that Richard Iwata and Nick Frost did such incredible stuff in the voice recording really really funny things where they just riff on ideas but part of especially Richard Iwata's humor is the fact that he has incredibly long pauses in his delivery which makes stuff really funny. It would have been a whole movie about pickles and we trout. we could never fit it into the film in the way that he presented it half the time so we had all this great stuff that we thought maybe we can use those guys for the button at the end and then it just a lot of, again a lot of pieces sort of came together in a great way where what they're saying makes complete sense for the arc of their characters in the film 
and it just allowed for a perfect thing with Travis to be presenting, you know, animating them, and it just all works really well. And like Tony said, you get that effect of being completely immersed in the movie, not thinking about the process at all, and then you get that nice little, at the end, where it puts it all in perspective again of, wait a minute, that's how this whole film was built. Yeah, that's terrific, yeah. With Squiggly, you know, the, the audience is mainly uh, animators or aspiring mm. animators, and uh, and it's really great when they, they can hear about people's career paths mm. and stuff like that. And so, um, I, was, I, was, I actually I was, I was looking at your stuff, and I realised mm. I'm familiar with loads of your stuff from different areas before. Oh, you know, okay. That I really like, like the old LucasArts yep. games, like um, Full Throttle, mm -hmm. and um, was it Sam and Max that you did? Or? Yeah, I, I didn't <coughs> work on the original Sam and Max. I, I worked on the one that never got. Put out there. Oh, right. It was an incredible game. It was so good, but it was one of those ones where we were like 85, 90 percent done the game. Everybody in the studio loved it, but it was an executive decision of like, oh, yeah, right. we're moving into more just Star Wars oriented. They were shifting presidents. It was like the worst situation oh, ever. Where you're like, oh, I loved Sam. I know a lot of people did. Now it's in a vault somewhere. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> we were just at Pixar the other day when Steve Purcell, the creator of Sam and Max, yeah. just did oh, that right. short, and he's 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 on pitching features there now. All oh, right. Okay. And then, um, and then your web stuff as well. The, uh, I believe it's called Gricker. It's based on a, an independent comic. Is that, I haven't yeah, seen the comic, uh, but I, I was familiar with the, the YouTube channel. It's, it's funny. Really the like more it. I look back <coughs> on my career and how I, I ended up in animation, it's always kind of been through the prism of comics and comic strips. The whole reason I even applied to Sheridan College, I grew up in Canada, mm. and the whole reason I applied to Sheridan College for animation was because I loved film and I loved comics, and I thought, well, film plus comics, I guess, equals animation. I really had, didn't know anything about the process when I first got into that program. Um, and during my time at LucasArts, uh, at a certain point, which was inevitable in games, all the animation being done turned to CG animation. So I had to start learning 3D software, and I thought, wow, I got into this to draw. And so I started doing my own comics on the mm. side, and I ended up getting picked up by a <coughs> publisher, and it became like a big collection of, I just called it Grickle, because I just did short stories or whatever I wanted yeah. to write about or draw about, and uh, yeah, and Dark Horse printed a whole compendium oh, of great. it yeah. for the last 10 years, and so I've just been able to maintain doing comics on the side as yeah. well as working in animation. The kind of minimalism of the uh, of the Grickle stuff online, and also, well, I mean, the, the LucasArts stuff wasn't really minimal, but it was kind of slightly limited animation, mm -hmm. I guess. And, um, and then the translation of that to the incredibly elaborate uh -huh. you know, world yeah. of box trolls. Yeah. But storyboarding. But storyboarding was where, you know, the comics again actually uh, are what got me the job storyboarding on Coraline. Because it's funny, I look back, uh, the first year or two out of college, I got a chance to do storyboards for Chuck Jones. That when they were back in the early 90s, they were trying to re revitalize theater shorts. Mm -hmm. And I got a gig boarding a whole, like, theater short with like oh, Daffy Duck and Porky Pig and all the classic yeah. Warner Brothers characters and I got to spend a week in LA with Chuck Jones overlooking all the boards and just an amazing experience and I thought wow storyboarding that's what I want to do in animation but as it happened I ended up animating in video games for the next 15 years mm. but the comics were the thing that I knew I wanted to get back to storyboarding at some point and I guess it's my Grickle comics that ended up in front of Henry at a, at a certain time when he was beginning to try to crew up for Coraline. Mm -hmm. And it was the comics that he was like, okay, I'll take a chance on this guy boarding. So it's always kind of been my way yeah. in. Yeah, because neither of you have got a particularly 
typical path into this. Uh, no, I can't do anything else, so I just took any kind of animation <laughs> job I could get, so I ended up working everywhere. Because I, I read your uh, kind of, you know, Wikipedia and all that, and um, and it was saying that you worked at, you know, ILM doing effects animation. Yeah, and, and you know, lots of I, live action stuff. Yeah, when I were, <coughs> when I got out of school, um, I my first jobs were working overseas in Asia on Saturday morning crap uh, in the salt mines there, you know, <laughs> Ewoks Adventures and Palm yeah. Puppies and Popeye in the Stone Age and all that kind of stuff that is rightfully so, completely forgotten now. So I did that for a while, and then I ended up in the Bay Area, in San Francisco, and there's mm -hmm. a great commercial studio there, Colossal, that did a mixture of everything. 2D, stop motion, um, early, early CG stuff, early, early motion capture stuff. Mm -hmm. And that was a great place to be at that time, because Henry was making uh, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, mm -hmm. and James and the Giant Peach, so I worked on that. And then uh, ILM was right there, and ILM was a great place to work in between jobs doing TV commercials and stuff. So they still did everything optically, hand-drawn. Uh, elements that were used as mats to mm. burn into, whether the rocketeers' flames or the, the, the mats of the hands <coughs> passing through stuff in Ghost mm. and Hook and Back to the Future, they all had the, those traditional hand-drawn effects. So it was a great place to work if you were a starving animator because they always hit a job at a certain point and they said, work as many hours as you could stay awake. So you could sleep at your desk mm. and work and bill them for as many hours as you wanted to. So <laughs> you just drive up to San Rafael and work for a while for a great big payday. Right. Until the day we were working on Meteor Man, and we went to see these dailies for some dinosaur movie they were working on, and then we just <laughs> saw the Tyrannosaurus Rex in Jurassic Park, and we were like, oh no, <laughs> these days are over. And within a year or two, there was no more optical effects at ILM. It completely changed. Yeah. So then I went to story and, and stuff, and then, yeah, that story's the fastest route. came in through the story route. Yeah, sto story's the fastest route to being the director, because yeah. you're there at the very beginning, you know the story best, and if you have a history, animating too all the better you know as far as having some qualifications for directing yeah because i noticed uh, james and the giant peach on there and that's that's i mean you know, i said this is one of my favorite films of the year but that's one of my favorite films ever you know yeah it's films. great I love that. yeah and yeah. Uh, so was that kind of your route into stop frame do you think or? yeah i mean i've done a little <coughs> bit you know on tv commercials and stuff at that place uh colossal because they did everything and stuff but I, and i knew henry and uh, henry's wife used to run the animation department at colossal pictures so i knew them pretty well and then i went over and did some work on james and um it was mostly effects work for them and a little bit of boarding work and then i worked with henry for a while developing new projects none of which came you know eventually um the, that studio closed down, and then Henry, it took Henry a while to get another project. So I felt like I'd always been on the verge of working on a stop-motion movie, but it never came together. So when I had the opportunity to visit Leica, mm. it was great. It was a good chance. Was that, is it any... I mean, did both of you come from Portland or anything like that, or did yeah. you both I'm from Boston. move there yeah. for the job? Yeah. I grew up in Canada, yeah. Yeah, L.A., Boston, San Francisco. Portland was just to visit like I yeah. didn't know anything about it. Yeah, I mean, I was living, working in the Bay Area for a good length of time when I was at Lucas and stuff, and we had a friend living in Portland, and every time my wife and I visited Portland, we thought, wow, if we stay on the West Coast, I think this is where I want to be. But at mm. that time, that was before Leica, I thought, mm. I don't know what we would do there. <coughs> I think the equivalent now would be, um, like, we see students a lot. It's When we were, like, I was an animator, but I definitely learned how to do some story <coughs> stuff and learned how to do that effect stuff. Um, and, and then, you know, kept doing that kind of stuff and then moved into story development mm -hmm. and writing. Nowadays, it's like when we see these students, they're learning, you know, they're doing a little bit of 2D in their first mm -hmm. year, but they're also learning Maya, 
mm-hmm. and they're you know learning after effects and a bunch of other stuff. And that that's the way to do it is mm-hmm. have those few things so you can keep going. And I don't even know like what would be best to know in the game world nowadays. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure Maya and stuff like that is mm-hmm. all goes back and forth. But there's guys I know who are at um, ILM now in, in in the Presidio in San Francisco, and they're practically storyboarding on Maya. So eventually even what we're doing still in drawings will all be done on the computer. Just right now the low res Maya faces can't give you the emotional performance that you would need for storyboarding because if they could you could storyboard and and set up the shots Mm -hmm. and everything and it would be really nice but right now they're not. They're too crude Mm -hmm. um, to I've got a feeling it'll always start on paper. That's what I was going to say too. I don't know if I totally agree with that one. Yeah, you never know. I would have. I don't know. Every step of the way, every time I've never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, it's because the computer (laughs) has proved me wrong. It's like they'll never be able to replace us when it comes to this. Oh, that's way better. Yeah. 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 Because I I was there. I can remember the day we were at Colossal. Colossal at that time was um, repped. Pixar, who did TV Listerine mm. commercials and stuff, and John Lasseter came over and walked around saying, hey, we're going to do a CG movie, and we were all working on mm. Chili's commercials and Blastic Pickles, mm. so whatever, you know, we're into it, and, and all those guys who left, Bud Lucky, Bob Pauly, um, they're all still there at Pixar, mm. you know, they worked on Toy Story, and they, they, yeah, right. they started drawing when they went there, but yeah. they all ended up, you know, eventually working on the computer. Yeah, because I'm old enough to remember, you know, when I first saw uh, Luxo Junior. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah Toy yeah. Story, and it yeah. just changed the world, didn't it? No. Yeah, it really did. But also, know, Jurassic Park, like you say, you know, when, when that came out, that was a we were all game doing, changer. There was guys in the effects <clears throat> department there who were stop motion animators, and they were doing the hand drawn stuff, and they were thrilled. There was a dinosaur movie, the dream of their life, their Ray Harryhausen dreams, was mm-hmm. to animate dinosaurs. And Jurassic Park was coming in, and they, you know, and I knew Steve. Uh, Steve and, and, and Mark DePay and, mm-hmm. uh, and those guys were trying an experiment on the computer that we all sort of poo-pooed and stuff. But I, I saw their test, which was mm-hmm. just the bone structure of the Tyrannosaurus Rex running, and that was really impressive. Their problem was to put meat on it mm-hmm. and to make the meat move, and that was stuff that, that the textures mm-hmm. stretch without looking stretchy mm-hmm. and stuff. And that I didn't think they would be able to figure out in time mm-hmm. and stuff, but you know, but they did. The other thing is yeah, that they started making it stop frame, didn't they? I believe they did. Yeah, Phil Tippett started yeah. to do it, and they were they had this incredibly elaborate input device, which was yeah, yeah. it was this uh, it was a mechanical dinosaur that they were going to have the two D animators animate because there was nobody there wasn't that many people who could animate on the computer yeah, no, certainly not at the level yeah. of the stop motion guys so they were going to have this mechanical dinosaur and they were going to pose the whole thing and input that into the computer mm. as like a motion capture thing. it was totally ludicrous so it was like comedy. making the movie three different times to make one scene <laughs> but the other thing is that really um, I didn't have all that much interest in working on features mm-hmm. prior to Toy Story and Nightmare Before Christmas because those stories they just seem so much more sophisticated like I loved what they were doing at Disney, The Lion King, the craftsmanship was all great. But for me, those were still kiddie kid yeah, movies, just right, kid yeah. movies, and I wasn't that interested. But Toy Story, especially, and, and Nightmare Before Christmas, those are films like wow, these were so much yeah, more sophisticated. Exactly, yeah. I mean, people, you know, said that oh, two D kind of died out because yeah. no one wanted two D. But I, I don't believe that. I think it was no. because the stories they were making were just not interesting. Yeah, they, yep, they stayed. It's funny to the, the technology stuff. changed, but the stories stayed the same. Yeah. And even when they the <coughs> last few attempts to do it, the story they didn't no. exploit two D in a new way. And, yeah. stuff. and I think somebody will eventually. Oh well, yeah, I mean you look at Japan, Miyazaki and stuff. He does it's incredible. Yeah, isn't yeah. It? And even like you said, it's it's like right now <coughs> part of what we do. We have this this you know this medium of animation, stop motion, that's as old 
you know, is mm. cinema, and, and it appears new now sometimes yeah. because of the, Absolutely. you know, Travis's vision for these new technologies, but also because it's rare. Yeah. And I think somebody will do that with 2D here yeah. in the United States and stuff. Just Song of the Sea and Stuart Kells and stuff, those those get make a big impact because yeah. people don't get to see that stuff. Yeah, they feel refreshing. Especially since TV animation like Gumball and Adventure Time yeah. is so yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. That, that stuff is some of the best animation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they the do really interesting stuff on TV, don't they? But yeah, not in the way cinema more interesting in 2D. Yeah. Well, they got to hurry up, though, because all those 2D guys are getting old. <laughs> so that was Steve Cav and Fiona Stewart-Clark chatting with Graham Annabel and Anthony Stacci, the co-directors of The Box Trolls, in the running for a 2015 feature film animated Oscar. You can, of course, uh, if you wish, listen to the third uh, name on that uh, uh, Oscar nomination docket, the producer, uh, Mr. Travis Knight, on uh, the Squiggly podcast number 24. Um, so if you listen back to that one, you'll hear more about the box trolls and more about the film from uh, Travis's point of view. So in the last podcast of 2014, we spoke to Disney veteran Glenn Keane, who uh, shared his insight and his memories of working at Disney. It was a, one of my favorite interviews, I think, so far about simply the uh, the artistry of animation, the, the sort of sheer artistic technique that goes behind, you know, some of the best animation we've seen in modern times and, of course, in sort of classical Disney movies as well. Which isn't to say that more contemporary methods or, you know, other practitioners aren't doing it right. I just really sort of enjoy people really talk about, you know, artistry of, uh, you know, the great sort of painters and illustrators and uh, uh, draftsmen of, uh, of the olden days can really be applied to animation. And uh, it shines through, obviously. You know, those characters are uh, timeless for a reason. Absolutely. It's also nice to hear somebody who... He's so natural and he just, he just seems like this kind of guy who just loves talking about his craft. And they're always fantastic interviews to listen to. And everything he says as well is obviously inspiring and, you know, uh, educational and, and every, all the other good things that you expect from a good interview. We have another interview with Glenn Keane. This time around, Glenn's talking with Julia Young about his new venture, the uh, interactive animated short slash app slash experience duet. Wasn't amongst the Oscar nominees, but it's sort of... It, it's beyond a film, in a sense. I'm not entirely sure whether the film version of Duet actually does the ambition of it and the scope of it justice. It really is something that has to be experienced. And it is out now for Motorola devices, and I believe a wider release will be uh, forthcoming quite early on this year. Essentially, it's a film that you find yourself in the middle of, and using the technology that phones have to um, determine spatial awareness and that kind of thing, you can look at different sort of areas of the film in a sort of 360-degree fashion. It's really quite something. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. I, everything that I've seen and heard and from the last interview, um, it seems uh, like a huge step forward in animation. And since it was sort of announced sort of uh, uh, mid-late-ish last year, a lot of hubbub's been sort of around it. There's been a lot of uh, anticipation for it. And I think the general consensus is it's, it's been worth the effort. I think in a lot of respects, I don't think it will inspire a glut of films that, you know, nick the idea and, and rip it off. But I think it's representative of a bold new direction that filmmaking is going to be able to go. 
and I think that you know there has been a slight lament perhaps of how the culture of film is perceivably dying off a bit. We talked a little bit last episode about you know the culture of film festivals suffering a bit of a blow, um, and that's something that's not just being felt nationally, it's being felt across the globe. A more positive way of perhaps looking at it is that the film industry and ways that films are being made, they're in a state of reconfiguration. Mm-hmm. And what's starting to happen is we're starting to see what happens next. And at the rather sort of you know limp end of the spectrum... We get to watch films in 3D. Woo! <laughs> but then on the other end of the spectrum, it's a lot less... Because, of course, the 3D films, that's something that just sort of... It's still regarded as slightly gimmickry, and uh, there needs to be a lot more work done to actually justify it. Whereas, actually, conceptually, rethinking how the film is made from the get-go, I think, is the, the real sort of future, rather than sort of retreading sort of gimmicky ideas when you see the kind of things that are happening with um uh, what do they call it the um virtual reality helmet oculus rift that's the one i mean have you seen some of the stuff they're doing with that yeah it's very primitive in one sense but you know you can sort of see the potential yeah you know, a handful of times that they've tried to do stuff like that in the past and we just weren't ready yet mm-hmm. like i mean it's primitive now it was sort of beyond primitive in like the 90s like, do you ever see um, the Virtual Boy? Yes. <laughs> that piece of <laughs> garbage. <laughs> yeah. There are some wonderful, you know, you get these people on YouTube who review, like, old failed gadgets. There are some wonderful, like, reviews of just how impractical and ergonomically, like, nightmarish that thing was. <laughs> do you remember the, the Game Boy printer? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> About five years after people stopped using dot matrix printers, they created a dot matrix printer. <laughs> it was basically like, yeah, you could print off like the sort of pictorial equivalent of receipts off it. <laughs> yes. I don't think I had the printer, but I did have the Game Boy camera. Yeah. That was, uh, and you could do all sorts of fun stuff with that. <laughs> like take a really shitty picture and then show no one because he realized you'd been horribly ripped off. <laughs> this is what my dad looks like in eight pixels. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know how lucky we were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're out alive. You know, but it, it all goes somewhere in the end. And, you know, I wonder if something like Duet, which is already very kind of immersive looking through a phone window, I mean, you'd think that that would be something that would perhaps work very well in a sort of fully immersive environment. But uh, we shall see. In the meantime, here is Glenn Keane talking about the potentially sort of technical nightmares, I guess, of it and uh, how he sort of overcame them with the help of his uh, very competent team. One of the sort of more intimidating elements, I think, to most traditional or 2D animators who do full animation is the notion that this bloody thing had to be made 60 frames a second, which, uh, you know, gives you cold sweats just thinking yeah. about it. <laughs> can you can you imagine getting the phone call? You're going to be an in-betweener for, for Glenn Keane. It's, it's, it's a perfect <laughs> job. Oh, mom! I'm going to be in in between for Glen Keane. I can't, I can't. I'm going to work with the master, and you get your first day, and there's this super nice, polite guy there explaining everything, and he says, "Yeah, so um, sixty frames a second. People <laughs> like, ah, oh, Glen, very funny. Um, so, what do you want me to? No, no, sixty frames a second. I see. And which button do I press on the elevator to get to the roof? <laughs> but. Uh... Anyway, this is Glenn Keane being interviewed during his time at the Bristol Encounters Festival this past autumn. Let's hand it over to them. 
you tell us a bit about how Duet started after you left Disney? Well, I've been at Disney for 38 years, mm. and uh, you know, you work at a company where you're creating animated films within a house style, mm -hmm. and something inside of you, though, says, well, what would you do if you didn't have to do a film that really fit within the Disney walls? Mm -hmm. Would it be the same? Would it, what, what, what is it? And these questions were kind of bouncing around in my mind, and eventually I felt like I needed to leave. Mm -hmm. Well, this duet is the first fruit that fell from the new tree here, mm -hmm. uh, Glenn Keane Productions and started, and um, did it in conjunction with Google. Mm -hmm. They invited me up to Silicon Valley, their offices, and uh, showed me a uh, phone with a little screen mm -hmm. on it. And I'm thinking, why am I interested in doing animation for this little screen when I've done animations all on big screen? And, uh, then I looked closer, and it, it wasn't a screen, it was a window, a window into a virtual world that when you look in, it's it just opens up to infinity. It's rather than the smallest screen, it's the biggest one you could possibly have. And, and that you are giving the audience the camera into this virtual world where they choose and follow. So you know, they said, "What well, Regina Dugan, who runs a division uh, research division for Google, it's called ATAP." She said, "What well, what would you do with this?" I immediately started picturing if I had two little babies and watched them grow, mm -hmm. but they're they're like intended. These will eventually be a couple mm -hmm. in life and uh, watch them grow, but they do it in a circle. Mm -hmm. So each t and you have a choice. You can follow one or the other. When the babies cross and they go off screen, usually that's a cut. Yeah. In this case, you could follow her, keep going, or, hey, I'll follow him. And you could keep doing that and watch them grow and they fall in love. Mm -hmm. We did this little story and we called it Duet. Um, so I was thinking this and I said, well, what, what do you want me to do? She said, we just want you to do something beautiful and emotional. I remember you saying in the Q&A yesterday that you were inspired a lot by your grandchildren as well. Like, your, you know, your granddaughter's dancing classes was a big inspiration for me. Was it nice having that kind of family just make it really organically? Well, yeah, it's, for me, it really comes naturally. My dad is a cartoonist who lives at home. He based his comic on all of us kids. Mm -hmm. So it comes very naturally for me to rip off my family. That's <laughs> my source of inspiration. So my, yeah, the, watching our grandkids grow up and the way they crawl, I, videotaped my little granddaughter Matisse as she skips and my other grandson Roman watching him crawl there's a lot of baby butts <laughs> a lot of nudity in this one. but it was so um, much an expression of family love yeah. and, and also not just a family but um, a couple's destiny mm -hmm. and how you're meant to be together and really the story of two people that as they grow individually, they affect one another each time their lives cross and they help one another to become themselves. Yeah, that's absolutely beautiful. And in a similar way, sort of the organicness of your hand-drawn line, everything in the film, that's your lines, isn't it? Yeah. No clean up, 
know anything. But you had to do it negatively, didn't you? Yeah, well, it started off after that meeting up at Google where mm -hmm. I saw the, the potential of this. Then myself, my son Max, and my producer Jenny Rim, we went to a house we have in Lake Arrowhead near L.A., and we're thinking about, okay, so what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? So I was doing some animation of the babies crawling, and I gave it to Max, and he's the production designer, my son, and he um, said, Dad, what do you think of this? And he showed me just this beautiful image where he had taken the graphite line on the paper and lifted it off, and now the line was floating, and it was light in an atmosphere and it was it was like celebrating the line the line was an energy yeah he said this is really important that we celebrate your line mm -hmm. i mean he's watched my animation since he was little uh, and he's always valued the the rough drawing and so this is the first time actually people are seeing my line even though i've animated the beast and the mermaid and aladdin they know those characters but those are cleanup. Somebody else traced over my line and we painted it. Yeah. But this is the actual original drawings. And there's there's a personal energy that's there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess it's the work that I'm most proud of because it's actually my drawings. Yeah, it's yours. And I suppose as well with the continuous animation you were drawing the background as well, which I don't suppose has happened much before. So do you feel like it's sort of imbued an energy in the world as well as the characters? Well, we we never wanted the line to stop, mm -hmm. meaning where it's just frozen on the screen. The line always had to be a living line. Yeah. It, there has to be a movement and an energy to it, and actually redrawing the backgrounds, which is what I did, every frame is re being redrawn. So if you've got, uh, I don't know, rocks, or you've got a, a scene of, a, of like a park in New York City somewhere, or whatever, it, that's all just... It's being drawn in. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I, I really relate to Windsor McKay mm -hmm. with Gertie the Dinosaur, him drawing Gertie with the background. <laughs> you look at that and you go, well, that's insane. Who would possibly <laughs> do such a thing? Mm -hmm. Me. And then last night I had dinner with uh, Richard Williams. And Dick is probably the only other guy on the planet as crazy as me <laughs> to do that. Because, I mean, you, you have to really love drawing. Um, to do that and not look at it as a pain but instead it's it's a it's a chance to express yourself mm -hmm. of course you took it to another level as well because the computer guys asked you to do it 60 frames a second yeah so it wasn't just the 24 six just how did you deal with that um well after kind of having an emotional breakdown <laughs> well the first thing that yeah they said it was you know it would really help us if you would draw at 60 frames per second because that's how it's being projected on the phone it's, mm -hmm. it's the screen is refreshing at 60 frames per second uh -huh. no, it would help you guys but what about me <laughs> i've spent 38 years thinking in 24 frames per second mm -hmm. timing how do you transpose that to 60 i mean 24 doesn't go into 60 and uh, Max and Jenny and I would go home and we'd just be like, what in the world this is, how do you figure this out? And uh, our brains would hurt by the end of the day. And then I, I realized, you know, sometimes if you look back, you find the answer to how you're going to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, 
which is really the theme here at Encounters, is like looking back, back to look, to look forward. forward. That, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. exactly what, in this case, I realized when I started at Disney, all the old guys had on their desks a metronome. Mm -hmm. And that was because 24 frames a second was just as bizarre as 60 was for me. And their way of dealing with it was a metronome. And that metronome, that's 24 drawings, that's 24 drawings, that's 24 drawings, that's 12 drawings. And I thought, oh, well that's 60 drawings, that's 60 drawings, well, that's 30. Uh -huh. And suddenly it was like, oh, I, I can deal with that. Uh, it just takes more drawings more chances to express yourself is a better way to think of it rather than more labor yeah and uh now actually my sense of timing has changed mm -hmm. if i animated in the old way it it just would would the timing would be odd it'd be too mm. slow or, you know but now i don't know there's something fresh and wonderful about stepping into the brave new world of 60 frames per second oh that's lovely absolutely brilliant so is that what you want to do next? Would you like to keep? You've been pushing the boundaries quite a lot. You worked on Paperman, didn't you? And now this. So you're very much getting the computers and 2D to work together harmoniously. Is that what you'd like to continue doing? Well, I've always uh, found that anytime technology crosses my path, mm -hmm. it forces me to be a better artist. Mm -hmm. And I've always seen myself as an artist first, an animator second. Mm -hmm. What I didn't want to do was just give up my pencil. Mm -hmm. It's like saying to a violinist, you know, playing on the strings and everything, you don't need that now. We got synthesizers. You know, just forget that. Like, no, no, the world is a better place for a Stradivarius. And the world is a better place for a pencil, graphite on paper. But is there a new way that you can take and express yourself as an artist with a pencil. How can the computer, how can technology come in? Yeah. And I feel like we are still just just exploring where that's going to go. I don't at all believe that hand-drawn animation is over. Mm -hmm. I feel like it has now been liberated to become something much more expressive. Like, if you think about Disney animation, the style mm -hmm. of it, the look yeah. of Bambi, for example, it's beautiful, but its design looks that way because of a technical limitation. You have to paint on cells or draw on cells because you, you, you have to be able to look through the paper and see all that. Well, now with the computer, you could animate in a style like uh, Degas. Everything is possible, and I love that. I love the personal expressive medium that artists today can be really pushing forward into moving animation from maybe say a big studio realm into much more personal artistic expression. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of looking at it, I really like that view. So instead of just dividing or multiplying, you used it as giving the line more life, it has more frames every second to be alive in. You mentioned yesterday there was a scene where Tosh is running towards some boulders and you just let it go, kind of yeah. thing. He was jumping over a log. Do you feel that's nicer with more frames? You feel like you, again, you are more free? 
Well, it's not only the, the 60 frames per second, but it's also the nature of a medium where there is no cut. I, I think the, like, the longest scene that I animated before duet was maybe 20, 30 seconds, maybe. I can't even... I, maybe. Probably more like 20 seconds. That's a long scene of animation. Yeah. Well, this was five minutes of unbroken time of animation just continue and both characters moving in any direction three characters actually <laughs> moving in three different directions you know it was um, it was mind-boggling but when I got my head behind around it I found it was very freeing to think in terms of um, the character is running through real space it's really happening for them so when I'm animating Tosh running across those boulders, I'm just drawing the boulders coming in, and when he leaves, they go off. They disappear, and actually the line just kind of fades away, and it goes off. It's almost like a little vignette in poetry. It's much more like visual poetry. Okay. And so I'm, and at a certain point, I'm watching him, and I was up at about 5 in the morning animating this scene where Tosh is going to run to a tree. And I know that he's going to get to a tree. So I know somewhere... I'm going to draw this tree, and I'm going to have him run across this field. So as he's running, I, I, I remember the drawing of the, the foot is stepping forward, but something in me said, no, nah, he doesn't want to go that way. That's too much of a straight line. When I was a little boy, I would never run a straight line. I'd go deep into the field. He wants to go this way. So in that drawing, you can see the foot straight out, and then like, no, there's... I raced it, or I didn't even race it, I just drew over top of it and started turning his body into the depth of the field and he starts running deeper into the grass and I suddenly knew that, okay, there's got, he wants to jump and is that a rock? And as I'm animating it, I'm discovering this as if I wasn't even thinking it up. Like, Things are just appearing off screen. Yeah, it's like, no, that's not a rock, that's a log. Oh, it's not a log, it's actually a tree that's fallen down in the roots, and he's hanging on the roots, now he's jumping, and I'm just hanging on to this pencil, watching this little guy run and rolling through the grass, and now he's lost in the grass, and the birds are flying out, which reveals where he's at as he's rolling through the grass. Finally, he gets to the tree. But it was... It was in the, the process of getting there that the entertainment was. And this is, a, this is something that's so vital for an animator to express himself spontaneously and to feel the inspiration of a moment. Like if Degas was painting or Van Gogh, he didn't sit down and figure that all out before he started. He, he responded, the, the paint, the artwork speaks to you, and you respond and, and you take it, take that inspiration and, and you build on it. It's like a wave that, that rises up and you, you are moving with it. That's the kind of freedom that I think that animation should be starting to open more doors for animators that way. Like that little scene never would have happened if, if it had been storyboarded out and you actually had a production schedule that only allowed so much time footage and all that. Yeah. I hope my animation in the future will hang on to that aspect of doing duet.
wonderfully free. And of course, when you reach the tree then, finally, there's another whole technical challenge because the tree's 3D, isn't it? Yeah. And when the app is actually released, you can explore the tree. The characters will wait for you. So what was involved with that? Did you have to liaise a lot to get the angles right and the perspective? And well, you still have this, the limitation. I mean, all creativity happens because there are limits on what you can do, which actually forces you to be creative. So we have the limits of a piece of paper that's this big. But when a tree is actually huge, how do you draw that? And the way we did it was uh, created a mosaic. I mean, a mosaic where these little squares were all branches because I'm animating the characters climbing through the branch and I just kept drawing on another sheet of paper another sheet of paper another sheet of paper eventually we had the entire floor covered in huge drawing of two trees because she climbs a tree he climbs a tree and they both trees cross she probably thought it was just one it's actually two and uh, when they see each other the audience sees both of them but you can actually now go and explore the outer regions of this tree and the music fades away and hear it on the device. You hear just the sound of the wind and the leaves and you can just explore. And then the characters are waiting for you to come back and when they, you do, then she stands up and she walks across the branch to leap into a pond. He jumps off into some leaves and goes surfing and she goes swimming and eventually they they connect again uh-huh. you, you have that complete freedom to follow whichever character you want and of course the music is a good point at this point because they both have their own individual tracks don't they the music yeah. changes yeah Scott Stafford uh, is a genius <laughs> because you have to be able to be writing music for one but then at any point you as a viewer can go you know what I think I want to see this character and you're led by curiosity but the music is uh, is playing this but he's got to now have a piece of music that is ready for you to switch from this one that's playing and fold right into that theme I have no idea how he does it I mean it's it's really this amazing house of cards he's created in this composition and it's a very emotional soundtrack Real instruments. We used a, a strata, two Stradivarius. I mean, one was a six million dollar instrument. Um, he wanted to feel very handcrafted in the music, just like we did in the visuals. I mean, I feel like it's just as much Scott as myself up there uh, performing on, on the screen. Yeah, and of course, it's beautifully synchronized as well as that moment where Mia leaps and she's quite young and she sort of grows a bit. There's a sort of sigh in the music. Yeah. Did you have to work very closely then to get that just right? Well, we, Scott and I talked quite a bit about those moments were vision moments. This is like where she is revealing who she wants to be. Could she really dance like that at that age? Nah, probably not. But... This is the way she imagines herself. I, I did a lot of studies of little girls dancing in ballet classes and the way they hold themselves. You know, they've got these little lima bean bodies, <laughs> you know, and, and they're, they're holding their arms up. And, but they picture themselves as a prima ballerina. And 
they just imagine themselves leaping like a swan, you know. But they're just this little. <laughs> but I thought, well, just animate her desire. Yeah. And so that's that was that moment there. Uh, and but eventually, if she really does become that that swan, that prima ballerina. Yeah. And both characters then are very free spirits. Obviously, she's imagining herself as this beautiful ballerina, and Tosh is out there climbing and exploring. He's all about nature yeah. and yeah, immersing himself in the world. And uh, I, as a as a boy, grew up in the Arizona desert and was always climbing this mountain near our house with these big cliffs and as he's climbing this the rocks along this waterfall I mean I I felt like I I was reliving my days as a little kid climbing the rocks I could feel the heat of the Arizona rocks in my hand as he's climbing up there stuff like that that makes makes the whole thing real to me and I mean if I believe it the audience believes it as an animator, that's what you, you're trying to get somebody else to live in the skin. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, did, I almost sort of sensed a bit of Tarzan in touch. Yeah, yeah. So we've taken the animator out of Disney, but the Disney's still slightly in the animator. Well, you know, that, that was the thing. I really struggled about leaving Disney because I felt like um, a baton had been passed on to me uh, by the masters of animation, Frank Thomas, Ollie Johnson, Eric Larson. And uh, I thought, how can I leave? And I realized, I won't leave. They'll come with me, and I'm going to take Disney places that I'd never dreamed of going. You know, I'm taking the same skills of storytelling through character and animation to Google or wherever we go next. Uh, I think Walt would be happy about that. I think he would. He was an innovator. Yeah. So I think he'd be very pleased. Yeah. And so you plan to stay at Google then? Going well, to keep... This, you know, I'm an independent contractor with Google right now. It would be wonderful to continue doing work with them. At the moment, we're waiting to see just how this plays out. You know, this is a whole new thing for for Google and for me. But that would be a delight to continue working with them. It feels almost a bit like a new medium because it's a window as opposed to a film. It's a window into another world. Yeah. So. And it's a... It's a new way of storytelling that I think also translates not only to just this screen, but even if you did it on a big screen, it's a way of telling stories, more visual poetry, even in scripting, storyboarding. The structure of story can be so much freer. In three and a half minutes, you can still bring an audience to an emotional moment where so many people say I, I was crying at the end I just felt like I was holding back tears and I'm thinking well I, we've spent 90 minutes at times trying to bring, bring somebody to that point yeah. and this can do it in a shorter piece much more expressive like that's why I guess I say visual poetry yeah and it is an incredibly expressive thing as I say the free spirits you just want to go on the journey with them and oh, I don't know I just want more at this moment I want more <laughs> Thank you, Julia. I would, I would like to do more. Yes, I hope you do. So thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the festival. It was wonderful um, talking with such you. Such a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. You too. Well, that was Glenn Keane talking to Julia Young at last year's Encounters Festival whilst presenting the early version of Duet. Duet is now available for Moto X devices from Motorola. 
and we'll have a wider platform release, I believe, fairly soon. So uh, keep your eyes open for that. It looks like a fun one. Uh, we had a bit of a play with it when the, uh, he came to visit, and uh, it really is a, a very, very important, I think, leap forward in terms of just what we're going to be able to start doing with animated film. And who knows, maybe features. When you consider the turnaround time for it, this could be something that could be done on you know, a much bigger scale. You never know. Well, that's, in, that's interesting. Do you remember the, the article that was on Cartoon Brew ages ago? And it was about um, how uh, Disney had set up a screening of The Little Mermaid and they'd given kids iPads and the kids had to play with their iPads while watching the film, which, which is just absolutely ridiculous because why would kids want to play like point-and-click games while The Little Mermaid's on in the theatre? You know, it's just that these games would pop up or these questions or things would pop up. And, you know, it was like a kind of digital audio commentary, a little bit of extra while 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 you're kind of immersed in the... Well, not immersed in the film. But this is completely different. This is getting immersed in the film and interacting in an, in a different way. Yeah, it would be fascinating to see what they could do with features. Mm-hmm. What was the result of this experiment like did kids was it that the stuff on the ipad corresponded to the film yeah or was it just like to distract them i think it was like it was a kind of when a song came up there'd be like stuff related to that song that you had to do on your ipad you know when this came up you had to when stuff came up you had to interact it it, it was kind of a timed kind of play along screening but the film just played as normal Mm -hmm. You know, which which to me is just such a waste of, of, you know, what is a great film, you know, just to kind of waste your time prodding a, a, an iPad when uh, when a good film's on. Well, sometimes I, I genuinely worry about what this is all going to do to evolution. Yeah. Um, because, well, I, it, it's almost like I kind of am starting to understand what addiction's like, because like when I know that something important's been like tweeted and it can wait... I'll be out to lunch with someone or something like that. And the part of me will start to wander a little bit and be like, you know, maybe I should check and see if anyone's replied to this or, you know, <laughs> like, uh, or, you know, any train ride or anything where like, you know, you have stuff that you brought to do. And it's just like, there are all these options of immediate distraction. It's the sheer immediacy of it yeah. that I knew was going to happen, which is why I put off getting a smartphone for many years and a tablet even a laptop to a degree. And, you know, eventually you kind of have to because you can't function in the world without it. And sure enough, it just, it, it happens. It, it becomes a part of your daily life and your daily operation. Well, yes, yeah, especially running something like Squiggly. I mean, we've both got access to the, you know, there and uh, access to the Twitter and the Facebook and stuff. So whenever anyone gets in touch, we get it straight away and we think, oh, how, you know, what do we do? Um, and it's always, it's always kind <laughs> is it of... Re- does it really throw us? Well, it's, it's always... It's, <laughs> what do I do in no, this no, situation? Like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. Mom! <laughs> but it's like, it's always, oh, information. I'm going to go for go to see what's happened, what's happened, what's happened, you know. And, and then when your phone isn't buzzing, you're like, oh, there's not much information coming through. And it's, the kind of distraction is, is always welcome. You know, I look at my phone when I'm on my own and something for a moment isn't completely grabbing my attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, kids are going to be probably way more inclined because the thing about something like The Little Mermaid is the technical brilliance of it isn't going to be as prominent to a kid, it's just another thing that's on a screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so the moments where the story perhaps is lagging 
or whatever, then, you know, yeah, I could see a kid punching up his, his tablet. And you're watching something with someone else and then seeing them get distracted mm-hmm. at a bit that you know is important. That's what's really annoying. Yeah. But you're going to miss the thing. There's an important <laughs> plot point coming up. Well, this 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 is it. I mean, we're looking at two examples here of 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 ways to to appreciate. One's a, a big appreciation and interaction with Glenn Keane's animation, and the other one is just kind of completely ignoring his little work on the Little Mermaid, so he can play like a kind of join the dots and get a picture of Sebastian or whatever, pop the balloons or I don't know whatever the, whatever the games were. And absolutely, what a stroke of genius to. To embrace that and say, okay, well, let's have the distraction be the film. Yes. Engage people. And, you know, I, I mentioned in the last episode that brilliant speech in South Park recently of uh, where the devil's talking about dopamine and they're talking about tapped out, essentially, in that Simpsons app. Yeah. You know, that was, I mean, that's it. That's like, that's what's happened to the world. Mm-hmm. Everything is just at our fingertips. And so our brains aren't functioning the way... Our brains have sort of become like the appendix, like it, it doesn't have the same use that it did when we were scavenging around in the rocks and the dirt. So it's it's firing, you know, stuff at the wrong time. And we feel, I think, less dissatisfied and we crave more immediate gratification. And it's always been there really since video games. My mother's been playing the same game of Tetris since 1988. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be entertaining seeing what happens in in pretty much the next five years. I, uh, you know, there there are blogs called you know the next five years. I've been researching for my PhD, and um, it we're we're at the beginning of a huge boom for for entertainment, and you know everything's going to change. It's it's going to be an absolutely absolutely fascinating to see how how we as consumers kind of consume media and how media changes to to fit the kind of advancements in technology, and that's why it's great to see something like duet uh embracing that with animation well here's hoping it's the beginning of something uh, special and thank god the likes of glenn Keane are on board mm-hmm. there are very few people i think of that could do i mean if we're talking cg animation that would probably make it so much easier but the whole point is to like create this sort of you know 2d world you know using traditional methods and and who better really mm-hmm. You'd need someone of the likes of Glenn Keane or the likes of Richard Williams, perhaps, you know, someone who just has that really steep, incredibly well-informed knowledge of the animation process to uh, to do it right. Absolutely. And, there, you know, there aren't a huge number of them. I mean, not less than there have always been, but in any craft, in any industry, in any field of art, there's going to be that sort of core group of people who are just absolutely bashing it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And uh, Keen is definitely amongst them. So thank you again for giving us the time to, uh, to talk to our podcast not once but twice. Moving along, or perhaps bringing it back uh, to the, uh, the afore-discussed uh, Oscar nominations, amongst those in the running is the NFB director Torrell Cove, who has had two other Oscar nominations for My Grandmother Ironed the King's Shirts, and the Danish poet, I'm a, I'm a big, big fan of. I like them both, but I uh, there was something about the Danish poet that I think really kind of... Um, it was just so kind of wonderfully an NFB film while being sort of pointedly not Canadian. And that's kind of where I think the NFB really operates best. It embraces this spirit of international co-production hmm. that uh, shines through in the stories of the films. Her latest film is Me and My Molten, which is um, more, I think, quasi-autobiographical as opposed to the others, which were 
I think there are also biographical elements, certainly in my grandmother, um, but uh, not quite as directly. Whereas this, I think, is sort of referencing a sort of specific time in her childhood. And a sort of distance, perhaps, between um, herself, her siblings, and their parents. And the sort of attitude of, you know, having a kind of artistic or design-oriented mindset, and whether or not that's the best thing in a sort of parental situation. Mm-hmm. It is entertaining. It's great seeing, like, the, the chairs that are always falling <laughs> over. And <laughs> like, the, 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 this kind of quest to be on top of the on top of everything design wise but it's really a bit of a challenge for the kids to to keep up with mm-hmm. <laughs> keep up with the parents lifestyle yeah very entertaining film so quite a while back i was over at the nfb and i chatted to a bunch of the filmmakers who had stuff in production Torrell was indeed amongst them putting the finishing touches on me and my molten and so i got some time with her to discuss the film Parts of this interview we put up in an episode of Lightbox last year, so you can have a look at that with some clips and uh, some making-of footage as well, which is uh, always uh, good stuff for a geek like me. But uh, in the meantime, here's Toral Cove discussing her Oscar-nominated Me and My Molten. Uh, Well, I uh, think it would be good to maybe, uh, for the benefit of our uh, British uh, listeners and readers, uh, talk a little bit about your history Mm -hmm. and uh, how you sort of come to be here. So what uh, what brought you to Canada and ultimately BNFP? It was um, I didn't really have any solid plans. I was um, I came here uh, to study uh, in the early eighties, and then uh, I just I just stayed basically. And then uh, as I became interested in animation, I realized that Montreal was a pretty good place to be, and uh, it's been my home ever since. Yep. So what was it about animation in particular <clears throat> that kind of caught your interest? You know, I'm not sure exactly if I can pinpoint that, but I had gone to school to study something else. I had uh, education in, uh, in urban planning, and uh, it was a great, really great education. I loved it. It was very interesting and uh, covered a lot of material. And there was quite a bit of drawing involved as well, which I liked. And then, um, But it, it, it didn't translate to what I felt was very um, satisfying uh, work. And then uh, I kind of happened on animation a little bit by chance, I think. And um, I tried it, and I uh, sat in on a course at Concordia University in the animation school there. And there was just something like, uh, it was like suddenly all the pieces came together. Um, Because I think what I had missed in uh, urban planning, which is also, you know, very creative, profession I think I had missed it was just too big it was too big it was too unmanageable and 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 um, um, the great thing I think about animation and uh, maybe especially the short film which you can do with small teams or by yourself is that you're very close to what you're doing and um, some think about us being controlling or not wanting to let other people do things for you, but I don't think it's that. I think it's just more about a sort of a closeness to what you're making. And uh, and I realized in animation, you know, you can write your own stories, make up your own characters, and draw them and move them. And I, I, I just found it immediately very exciting. And I just kind of, it was a bit of a eureka moment. And, and I still feel that way. <laughs> So you've had quite a uh, successful relationship with the NFB. Yeah. Um, is this your third film or fourth film? Yeah, it's my third uh, f- um, short film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how did the you and the NFB sort of first come to 
I came okay. here originally in the early 90s. Uh, I had done a year at the uh, at the animation program at Concordia, and um, then um, somebody here was looking for an assistant, and uh, and I got that job. Uh, that was uh, an I was an assistant on a you know good old fashioned cell paint film actually. So my job was to trace the drawings onto the cells, mm -hmm. and um, and then that job led to another job, and then. I thought, I had some ideas in the back of my head that I thought it would be fun to make film of, and I, I pitched some of them, and um, and the, I think the third or fourth that I pitched, I, I got, you know, um, I got some positive response from a producer who then decided that she would take it to a festival in Norway, because the content of the story was quite Norwegian. And um, then we found a co-producer, and... Uh, yeah, so it has been really, uh, it has been a really great place for me. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, was the first film the um, uh, my grandmother? Yeah, that's right, the, the grandmother story, uh -huh. the grandmother shorts, king shorts. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, um, the Danish poet that won the Oscar. Mm -hmm. And yeah. were they were, were they both nominated? Right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so was there a bit of pressure on the third one for? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I try not to think about it that much. You get, I mean, you know, you, you, you get just kind of immersed in the the process of the production and you just, you know, those, I don't know. I feel, I feel, I think most of the pressure that I feel is totally internal, actually. I just, mm -hmm. uh, it's a long time to make a film and you want it to be good and, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. The, uh, the Danish poet, which, um, I'm the most sort of familiar with, and I think it's the one that probably has the most visibility mm -hmm. from where we are. Uh, it's a lovely piece of work. Thank you. Um, as far as the story itself, was it an original idea or was it an uh, adaptation of something pre-existing? Yeah, no, it was an original idea, um, yeah. And do you think that's something that contributed to how well it was received? Probably. It's hard for me to, um, it's hard for me to know what people are thinking, but I think it touched a nerve somehow. I, I um, don't know which one exactly, but a lot of people have said that it reminds them of uh, a kind of storytelling that that people are very familiar with and used to. I mean, and that, and that there was something so familiar in the storytelling that they actually thought, you know, this was something that had, a, you know, was rooted in Norwegian storytelling history or something like that, which it, which it isn't. But but I think maybe um, I think it always helps a story to have a place, you know that it that it's rooted somewhere. And I think that if people like the story, they don't really care where that place is. Uh, it could be very far away from where they from what they're familiar with, but uh, that it's still uh, that it has some kind of geographic belonging. I think. Uh, I think might be an important factor to that kind of storytelling. Well, but I don't know. I mean, it is a little sentimental, you know. It's a, it's a love story and a happy ending, and yeah, I don't know. I think it has maybe a kind of a wistfulness to it too that people find appealing. Mm -hmm. Who knows? <laughs> I'm kind of glad I don't know actually. <laughs> so. cool. Are you able to talk a little bit about the film you're working on now? Sure, sure, yeah, I can do that, yeah. It's, um, it's also an original story, mm -hmm. and it's a little closer to, uh, not exactly a memoir, uh, but a little closer to um, uh, 
yeah, it's a little closer to a true story than the two others are. And because it is about something that I experienced personally when I was uh, about seven years old, and it relates a lot to um, um, my family. My family is all in this, they're all in the story. And uh, the, uh, the theme is this sense that I think a lot of kids have, whether it's uh, warranted or not, uh, that uh, they feel kind of alienated from their surroundings, that there's always some reason to feel different. And, um, and, th and that, I mean, I shouldn't generalize about these things, but my impression is that with kids a certain age, most kids a certain age, that age, you know, elementary school age, that that uh, to just kind of be more or less like everybody else and to fit in uh, is uh, is comforting. It provides a kind of security that uh, makes being little a little safer, I think. And uh, I had a great childhood, but I didn't have that because my parents were very... Um, preoccupied with not fitting in, with being different and mm -hmm. thinking of things, you know, fresh start and all that. And that manifested itself in many different ways, but but our, because my parents were architects, a lot of it had to do with the visual stuff, you know, it was like style and clothing and things like that. But also the fact that my mother worked full-time, which most mothers didn't back in the early 60s. Um, and then, so that's kind of the theme about feeling different and feeling a little alienated from your family because of these things and uh, about having a bit of a gap between the parents and the kids between what they really want but perhaps can't really express uh, what they really want from their parents and what the parents are very focused on giving and sometimes they're not, they don't, they don't really match. So that's the, um, and then we want a bicycle, and we want just an ordinary bicycle, and we get something really weird. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, so Mol it's called me and my Molten, and Molten is a bicycle. Uh -huh. cool. You're British, you probably know that. <laughs> 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 it's, um, it's the, um, it's, a, it, it's a British bike made by uh, Dr. Molten. Is it uh, ultimately the same art style that you? Yeah, I'm afraid so. <laughs> it's just, I haven't evolved much. I mean, uh, I d yeah, it's it's drawn. It's flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, their line drawings with filled colors and uh, not. Uh, I mean, the color palette is different from the two other films, but um, the idea is that it's supposed to be a bit of a period piece. It's got mm -hmm. a 60s modern, you know, mid-century modern piece. Um, but yeah, it'll. Uh, I think it'll fit well with the two other and two other films, and I think I think it might even work as a package, actually. You know, like a little trilogy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Okay. I think it's sort of um, even sort of when you deal with like the flat design or, mm -hmm. or line up line art mm -hmm. design and that kind of thing, it, it can be quite characterful. Yeah. And I think that that's especially when it's sort of bolstered by a, mm -hmm. a good story, you know. And I think that that's something that. Um, I'm glad it's it's still around because yeah. there's so much yeah. in, in a lot of contemporary filmmaking where mm -hmm. it, with all the stuff you can do in software now and there's so much you can do it's dizzying yeah you know and uh, sometimes it's just nice to watch something that's just simply done but yeah. done with thought behind it rather than just throw a bunch of you know the, the plugins at yeah you know. yeah it's tricky because it's uh you know this film is still I mean I started it 
quite a long while ago. I was uh, I had to put it on hold for a bit because I, I did a feature film in between. But the um, th it's uh, you know when I started it, I thought, well, I I I, I do I draw. That's what I do, and mm -hmm. uh, so this is what I will do. And um, and then at the same time, I feel a little silly for not taking advantage of all these other ways that you can do it these days, you know, but for this particular story I didn't really think it was necessary. I mean, I did consider briefly uh, to do more, you know, maybe make it a more of a uh, collage style film, but didn't really work. and. Uh, I couldn't really make it. I couldn't really make it work with the characters that I had designed and the, what I had thought for backgrounds and everything. So it's um, so I'm kind of sort of in between having this as a sort of deliberate choice and really just doing it because that's the way that I do it. I would like to try something different because a lot of it really looks like fun, mm -hmm. but I think I have to do that in the context of just trying out things and maybe not experimenting with it on a story that I have other plans for, to put it that way. Mm. Yeah. Between the working on the films, have you worked on other animation projects? Uh, yeah, I worked on a, I worked on a, on a Scandinavian production the past two, three years, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, a film based on, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Swedish children's book character. His name is Alfie Atkins. And, and uh, he's very well known in, Euro in, in uh, the Scandinavian countries. He's, he's uh, been around for 40 years. And um, uh, there was a TV series made based on uh, some of the stories from the books in the 80s. And then, um, uh, then the first feature about him was made. It just came out this, this mm -hmm. summer. So I directed that, and that was a huge experience. It was very. Uh, that was a feature-length film, and a feature-length oh. film, yeah. yeah. So were you um, were you involved much in the, uh, the the animation itself, or was it predominantly just sort of heading up? Yeah, no. I, I mean, I didn't do any animation myself. Oh. I, I storyboarded it, or I rough storyboarded it. But then, of course, uh, you know, you need you need uh, professional storyboarders to oh. storyboard something like that, but. So I wasn't uh, involved in the, the actual animation, um, but um, it was a very interesting uh, experience actually because I had been quite intimidated by the idea of doing a feature and I'd always said, you know, I never want to do that because it's, I have no interest in working on something where I can't draw and animate myself. But then you get into this other kind of production and you realize that, okay, so I don't get to do that, but I get to do a bunch of other things and uh, it's exciting on a on a different, on a different kind of level. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. So would you be potentially up for doing more features? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Mm. Depends, you know. Oh, well, thank you very much for yeah. talking. Well, thank you, thank you for that. So that was Toral Cove there discussing me and my Molten up for a 2015 Oscar for animated short film, and uh, lovely film it is too. It's good to see uh, the NFB back in the sights of the Academy. Absolutely, well deserved as well. The NFB, they always do fantastic work. There's, there's no denying that. I like Toroko's sort of uh, uh, creative spirit and her sort of creative um, investment in the film. She's done some supplemental, like, mini shorts mm -hmm. in the same style, in the same universe of Me and My Molten. 
um, that she's been putting up uh, in the last couple of months. They're all viewable on Squiggly or on the NFB uh, website. There's five sure signs your parents were architects. There's Redesigning Christmas, which uh, also went up as part of uh, Corrie's Squiggly Christmas Showcase, which if you missed out on those, there's some lovely uh, uh, seasonal films that she gathered as she did the year before, if you're feeling the post-Christmas blues. So Toro's Little Short is amongst those. And uh, in the hope of getting an Oscar nomination, she put up a little short called Party Time. Reportedly, she also put together an animation if she didn't get nominated. Ah, right. So she covered both her bases. So uh, she wasn't being completely presumptuous, but it's nice that uh, this paid off. Yeah. So again, you can watch those all on Squiggly or at the NFB. I mean, the NFB has some other great productions uh, in the chamber. I mean, it's been a great year for them this past year. Um, I'm really looking forward to some other stuff from other established talents. We had Janet Pellman's new film come out last year, Monsieur Pug which is a lovely piece of work. There's a real nice wit to the work that she does. And she's been animating for many, many years, mm-hmm. like right back to like the 70s. And she, if you haven't seen Monsieur Pug, um, I'm not sure if it's been in many UK festivals, but uh, it's just this wonderful little... It starts off as a kind of wry critique of smartphone culture, but then just goes absolutely crazy. <laughs> I always love that moment in anything. <laughs> yeah. There's also a light box on that one, too. Of course, Subconscious Password, we've uh, talked about uh, for, for quite a while now. And uh, uh, various others. Cordell Barker has a new film, hopefully coming out soon, which, uh, from what I've seen, is, is absolutely fantastic. It's his first stop-motion film. I believe uh, Alison Stoden and David Fine finally have another film in the works, although it's very early days for that ah, one. Ah, that's, in- that's, in- that's interesting. I'm looking forward to that one. I think it's sort of on the heels of uh, a really interesting project that uh, there'll be a feature on soon on the website, a chap called Jeff Chibas Stearns, who's a Canadian animator. He um, took the film Annie Jam, that uh, film from the 80s, took the concept of that and did a variation on the same idea where he got all these really established Canadian animators to contribute to it. And it's sort of basically, it's, it's musings and to-do lists uh, from these, like, you know, staples of the Canadian animation scene. And he brought, like, all these legends together for this one film. It's a lovely little project. And it was the first, um, I think, quite a lot of... It was the first, I think, people had seen of the likes of David and Allison and Janet Perlman and uh, various others for quite a while. I'm not sure if that immediately kind of inspired them to get back into it, but since that film, quite a few of them have, you know, announced new projects and various sort of forms of uh, gestation. So that's uh, a nice little celebration of Canadian animation. Keep your eyes on Squiggly for more on that. Where else shall we venture in our, in our podcast conversational toings and throwing, Stephen? What's uh, anything grinding your gears well, for charts? I've seen Brave, Ben. I've seen, I, think, I think we've done the grinding gears bit. I think you, you handled that one this month, mate. Um, have you seen the... Bear thund- in the have woods, you- kiss my ass. <laughs> have you seen the new, the new look Thunderbirds, Ben? Um, I- it seems almost... I'm sorry, that, that almost seems a, li- a tiny little bit filthy coming out of my mouth after we've discussed such films deserving of accolades for the last hour or so <laughs> i'm saying have you seen the thunderbirds I, I really don't like the look of the new thunderbirds it's just one image so far and i'm not a fan of it i've heard amazing things about it people who've seen it in motion but 
I'm judging. I'm judging it by one image, and I just don't like the look of it. It just looks like One Direction or something. It would. It would take quite a bit for me to feign a, an opinion either way. I don't feel something that I felt was beloved has been trampled on. I. I never really dug Thunderbirds, to be honest. It kind of missed us, didn't it? Didn't it? I mean, my little brother is um, 25. And it, and it hit the nail on the head with him. He really, you know, he had the Tracy Island. He had all the figures. He had the, the, the suit, everything. He was, you know, he was, he was well into his uh, his Thunderbirds. I, I remember thinking that Thunderbirds were, was a little bit kind of maybe childish, a little bit sort of in the same vein as Thomas the Tank Engine or something when I was a few years older than him. It shares something with stuff like, you know, the old Red Dwarfs when they'd shoot the scenes in space. And yeah. you see the models kind of having their little model laser battles. <laughs> which my memory was a lot crueler to. I have to say, they show some of those old ones on TV. And in my memory, you can like completely see the strings and they're all wobbly. They're actually quite smooth. They are. And then you get to like series six or seven when they started using CG. And boy, it's like, God, bring the models back. Oh, the CG, yeah. That was, yeah. That was dreadful. <laughs> Yeah, I guess there was kind of this need to to get with the times, perhaps, or you know, I think that the for a lot of people, the joke of a show like Red Dwarf and definitely a show like Thunderbirds was that it looked a bit shonky, and I think that maybe that wasn't the intention. Yeah, but why not embrace it? You know, well, that's that's you're not going to improve the comedy by making it look like a film. That's where Team America came from, really, wasn't it? Exactly. Just kind of you know, make the most of it and know what no make a joke of it or make a kind of you know, make it obvious that you know what's going on. And it established just how sporting the uh, the Kim Jong family were <laughs> about satire. Something that he's passed on to his son. I, I wish I, I wish something like The Interview looked like a better film. Did you see the film? I've not seen the film, no. Not, be, not out of fear, but out of kind of meh. It doesn't, yeah. I kind of feel, it's what a waste of a thing to be controversial, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, did, I didn't want to rush out and go see Pineapple Express, so I'm not going to rush out and go and see the interview. No, but it's... it's I don't know, I kind of feel like there is a, a very serious war being waged about the wrong things, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm one of many, I think, that, if I'm being absolutely honest, would probably have never come across Charlie Hebdo. But... Yeah. There's a... Culture of, of, of real sort of disingenuousness of these people who I think probably would have even found it quite offensive or found it deeply unfunny until it becomes the subject of a horrible atrocity. And then, it, you know, it represents something. And it's good that people are attuned to that kind of cause. But you see all this contradiction, people not entirely sure what it is that is being fought against. This is such and such is under threat, but the such and such doesn't line up. Yeah, I read a, a fascinating article. It was a, it was an interesting take. It was it was by a comic artist who'd created uh, one of the one of the many images that got retweeted in the kind of in the wake of of what happened at, at Charlie Hebdo, and it was one of a terrorist. But he was surrounded by pens and pencils and and paintbrushes, all pointed towards him. He was like in the corner, and he was you know, and, and that image um, got retweeted throughout the world. And there is a. When you put something on Twitter, it's fine for, say, a newspaper or uh, uh, something to retweet it and keep it in. And it's okay to embed tweets onto articles and such. But some, like news agencies, newspapers, um, big newspapers as well, were just lifting the image off the internet 
printing it in their papers without any kind of consent or, you know, informing the, the chap or anything. And this guy's left, you know, hundreds and hundreds, well, probably thousands, given the list of newspapers he'd listed, out of pocket. And he wasn't even kind of considered. So amongst the kind of fury and the kind of everyone trying to get get their word in and everyone trying to, you know, illustrate their point, this this these kind of artists are really being, who were at the same, you know, artists are, have been kind of badly done to twice in a, in a way, if I'm going to say it that way. Obviously, the... <laughs> There there have have been some some artists that have suffered bigger injustice than the people whose cartoons have been stolen. Obviously, the poor people at Charlie Hebdo. But, um, you know, for these sort of newspaper corporations, just to use the kind of uh, everything that's going on as an excuse to lift artwork and to say, oh, we're we're supporting these cartoonists, but we don't give a shit about these cartoonists is a little bit sort of disingenuous. What this situation has really given me a true appreciation for, taking it back to uh, our lovable duo Matt and Trey, is uh, the whole Comedy Central situation a few years back. Yeah. It, it puts that in so much perspective. Because when you think about it, you know, someone could have gone into Comedy Central one day. It's, it's, it's a horrible thing. You know, and that was always on the table, and that was why they pulled... You know, there were several instances and there were the sort of famous Family Guy episodes, which I think are more remembered as admonishing Family Guy. Yeah. Um, But they they were making a very sort of good point about, you know, the depiction of the prophet in cartoon form and the ludicrousness of that and how the network... It then became quite meta when the network actually, you know, showed signs of being cowed by threats and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so the, uh, the sense of the ending... More recently, the wonderful like 200th anniversary episode, which didn't even make it to the UK. And the whole sort of closing moments of that is completely censored in a way that makes you think it's a joke. Which episode is this, the 200th? What happened? If you can track them down, if you're in the UK, they're worth watching as a fan of the show because they're just a celebration of like all the classic South Park characters. Mm. Um, if you're not as fond of the new ones, for example, you, there's a lot to like about these ones because they bring back like Mephisto and the Mecha Streisand and you know all these people that you haven't seen from in in years. Um, sadly, no chef, but you know that would be kind of tricky. We all saw him die, Ben, in a very graphic way. They should have brought back um, Darth Vader, chef. Yeah, I think because that kind of that it was a joke, but you know I, I wouldn't have minded seeing that character come back. The basic premise is that all the celebrities who have been mocked and vilified by Matt and Trey are coming together to, you know, put an end to this awful town and their awful treatment at the hands of this awful town. And, you know, how do they how how do they develop uh, an immunity to it? How do they how do they become criticism proof or parody proof? Well, who's the one sort of quote unquote celebrity that's been able to do it? It's a certain prophet of a certain uh, nation. And so it's about kind of like trying to harness that power. And that is essentially why it's been banned in the UK. It's a great idea. Every mention of the certain prophet. Note what a cowardly (laughs) that I'm being, by the way. You can say, you can say the prophet Muhammad. You're not. Well, this is the thing (laughs) is even in the show, they had to beep out the name. Right. By the, the second, it's a two parter. So by the second part of this episode, um, pretty much every other like line is almost beeped in some way or other. And then it gets to the point in the episode, and it also has this wonderful callback to the Scott Tenerman episode, mm-hmm. which is, a, I think, 
probably one of the best episodes of all time. So anyway, it, the ending gets to that point where Stan or Kyle goes, you know, I learned something today. Beep. Like his whole speech <laughs> is completely beeped out, which I thought was f***ing hilarious. But then it turns out that it was actually beeped. Wow. And he gives his whole speech, which is available online. And it's absolutely perfect. It sums it all up with just perfectly. And this was, you know, four or five years ago, this episode aired. Mm -hmm. What to them was a very real threat. And I think to the audience has become a lot more real. There was probably a contingent of the audience that I may or may not have been amongst who thought that Comedy Central were being kind of panicky peats, if you'll pardon my language. But, you know, in the wake of what happened the other week, it was completely the right thing to do. Yeah. Satire is an important thing and and comedy out of tragedy is an important thing and it can be a very healing thing. Or just the vulgarity of satire or comedy or, you know, uh, cartoons that can take something serious, find something that could be perceivably, you know, not joked about and find some humor in it. Mm -hmm. That's what the best satirists are able to do. And usually it comes in the form of some kind of caustic delivery system because light comedians don't have the ability to do it. So you need the Doug Stanhopes or the Lewis Blacks or, you know, uh, various sort of other comedians who test perhaps the endurance of the audience yeah. or the people who can endure their, their general delivery and choices of subject matter are the, the privileged few who get to be let into the real sort of insight. Unless you go see a Doug Stanhope gig in Liverpool or <laughs> you've seen the YouTube video about that, haven't you? Is it the one at the comedy store up in Manchester? I think it's either Manchester or Liverpool or something like that. But as soon as he mentions paedophiles, as soon as he says that word, there's a guy and there who starts someone yelling. walks out. Yeah. I, I was in the right in front of the guy who walked out. Oh, wow. At that show. And at the beginning of... This is how old this video is. At the beginning of the video, Doug Stanhope goes, are my MySpace friends here? And you can hear me go, way! <laughs> I'll, I'll have to watch that one again. Yeah, it's uh, and but I remember the guy behind me got he didn't he wasn't listening to the material he just heard the word pedophile and then got really up in arms and I remember him saying I don't think you can hear this on the video but I remember him saying you wouldn't be saying this stuff if you had little girl like he was being <laughs> what a dumb f thing to say <laughs> that's obviously not what he's talking about yeah that guy doesn't get to hear what he has to say because mm -hmm. he's not f smart enough. Yeah. And if people just react to certain buzzwords, Frankie Boyle got in trouble for saying the N-word in a bit about racism. And the, the next day in the Daily Mail, Frankie Boyle's a racist. What the f*** is wrong with you people? Yeah. He put, a, he put up a perfect tweet that kind of underlined the sort of hypocrisy that most newspapers take in a situation such as this. And it says, uh, I'm reading a defense of free speech in a paper that tried to have me arrested and charged with obscenity for making a joke about the Queen. Mm. I mean, yeah. what will suit them one day, one week, and what will suit them the next week? It's all just such hypocritical nonsense. Yeah. You know, and thank God there are people who will point it out, not even people who have been at the brunt of it. But, you know, we, we have the Charlie Brookers. They, they give me some reassurance and a little to a degree. It's a bit like the whole network thing yelling. I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. <laughs> what does it actually change? Probably nothing. Yeah. But, you know, I, I worry perhaps that in the sort of introduction of this concept, I'm against the whole Je suis Charlie thing. I'm, I'm not. I appreciate what's being done. You know, I think that it's a very positive step. And I think that the solidarity 
in the animation community and the creative industries and outside of that in writing and journalism, just people who have a sense of humanity about themselves and get, you know, the the severity of this. Uh, that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. Ah, what are you going to do? We started talking about Thunderbirds and went into Charlie Hepto. Well, let's, let's bring it back to Thunderbirds. Yeah. The kids in the playground certainly did enjoy Thunderbirds. And, and so, like, these, uh, I remember playtime at school... And this is going to go into sort of Steve's sad story corner about my miserable childhood. But it was the, the kids. Shall we do a theme for it? If you could, that'd be brilliant. I could just play it on my phone wherever I go. What should we call it? Steve's sad childhood, or yeah, Steve's some... sad childhood. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so the kids at school were playing playing Thunderbirds, and these were all people that you know I thought was my friends. And so I said, "Hi, what are you playing?" Thunderbirds. Oh, brilliant. Can I play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, can I be Thunderbird 2? No. Oh, can I be Thunderbird 1? No. Oh, uh, Thunderbird 3? No. And there were all these people that had started saying, oh, no, this, this such and such is Thunderbird, you know, and everyone would assign the different ones. You can be Thunderbird 5. And I went, oh, brilliant. Yeah. Thunderbird 5 is in space, so if you could go to the other playground... <laughs> So I actually, this is what the kind of kid I was, I actually went to the other playground and stood there watching them playing Thunderbirds. And then a very sad story. And then I came down and went, hey guys, how can I help? No, no, Steve, you don't get it. Thunderbird 5 is in space. Get up to the other side of the playground. That is, that is, uh, that is very sad. Play the outro. Play the, play the sad story <laughs> outro. He's the little Thunderbird that no one wanted to play with. <laughs> Literally jettisoned into space. <laughs> and yet the puzzle pieces start slowly coming together. <laughs> Do you think the uh, the new Thunderbirds will uh, be the kind of political minefield that the likes of uh, Team America and Et al. has been? Or do you think no. they're going to play it safe based on these uh, bold new designs? No, I think... Um... I think that it's going to find its it's going to find its audience like most things do. I mean, there's going to be action, there's going to be adventure, there's going to be a kid somewhere stood in a completely different playground to the other kids. Mm. It's everyone's going to enjoy it. <laughs> in the background, you just see Thunderbird Five, just this little dot. <laughs> Slowly so, edges toward the other Thunderbirds, and they turn around, going back into space. Oh, okay. <laughs> 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 I don't hear you orbiting. <laughs> he really did nothing. He really... Thunderbird 5 literally did nothing. He was like... It, there was never an episode where it was like Thunderbird 5's day off or whatever. He, like, he was just trapped in space. Was there actually a Thunderbird 5? Yeah. Oh, okay. Was it Thunderbird 5 or Thunderbird 4 in space? I thought they just made it up to get shot at you. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I wouldn't have played along if they were doing that. Oh, you're Thunderbird 7. <laughs> he goes and sits in the cloakroom. <laughs> Go play in the road. <laughs> Kids can be so cruel to Thunderbird 5. <laughs> Any other remakes on the horizon? Or Probably. Probably. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I think that, that uh, remark uh, summed up our mutual enthusiasm for that topic. <laughs> uh, well, we've got... We did guess, we did Oscars, we did uh, ham-handed political introspection, shall we? Hit the credit button. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's go. 
Well, that was it for our first episode of 2015 of the Squiggly Podcast. Thank you as ever to our guests, Mr. Glenn Keane, back for a second visit. And uh, you can check out Glenn Keane Productions on Twitter at GlennKeenProd and GlennKeane.com. And uh, don't forget, if you missed it, you can check out part one of our Glenn Keane interview with Katie Steed in the last episode of the Squiggly Podcast. And also thank you to Torrell Cove of the National Film Board of Canada talking about me and my Malton. And uh, the Box Trolls directors, Anthony Stacci and Graham Annabelle, congratulations on their Oscar nominations and the Box Trolls BAFTA nomination as well. We're rooting for all of you. They're all winners in our eyes, Ben. They're all winners. Except, of course, the ones that lose. <laughs> Categorically and by definition, they're not winners. <laughs> of course, you can look back at all the old Squiggly podcasts and listen to interviews with directors from short films and feature films that will make a splash in the upcoming awards season. But for now, the Squiggly Podcast has been presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Follow Squiggly on Twitter at Squiggly or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. The Squiggly Podcast is produced and edited by Ben Mitchell with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. And don't forget, for all the latest news reviews, interviews, videos, and podcasts just like this one, visit squiggly.com. Squiggly.